Audible Studios presents Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. Written by Heather Ann Thompson. Performed by Aaron Bennett. Introduction. State Secrets. One might well wonder why it has taken 45 years for a comprehensive history of the Attica prison uprising of 1971 to be written. The answer is simple. The most important details of this story have been deliberately kept from the public. Literally thousands of boxes of documents relating to these events are sealed or next to impossible to access. Some of these materials, such as scores of boxes related to the McKay Commission inquiry into Attica, were deemed off-limits four decades ago. In this case, at the request of the Commission members who feared that state prosecutors would try to use the information to make cases against prisoners in a court of law. Other materials related to the Attica uprising, such as the last two volumes of the Meyer Report of 1976, were also sealed back in the 1970s. Members of law enforcement fought hard to prevent disclosure of this report in particular. Although a judge has recently ruled that these volumes can now be released to the public, the redaction process that they first will undergo means that crucial parts of Attica's history will almost certainly remain hidden. The vast majority of Attica's records, however, are not sealed, and yet they might as well be. Federal agencies such as the FBI and the Justice Department have important Attica files, for example, but when one requests them via the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, they have been rendered nearly unreadable from all of the redactions. And then there are the records held by the state of New York itself, countless boxes housed in various upstate warehouses that came from numerous sources, the state's official investigation into whether criminal acts had been committed at Attica during the rebellion, its five years of prosecuting such alleged crimes, and its nearly three decades of defending itself against civil actions filed by prisoners and hostages. In 2006, I was able to get an index of these files, which made clear that this is a treasure trove of Attica documentation, autopsies, ballistics reports, trooper statements, depositions, and more. It constitutes ground zero of the Attica story. Everything that the state holds in these warehouses can also be requested via FOIA, but here as well it is difficult to get documents released. As this book goes to press, and after waiting since 2013 for some explanation of whether my latest FOIA request would net me important documents, I just received word that state officials will not be giving me those materials. I know the items that I requested are there, according to the state's own inventory, and I also know that I did not ask for any grand jury materials that would be protected, and yet my request is still being denied. But thanks to so many who lived and litigated the Attica uprising, as well as so many others who took the time to chronicle or to collect parts of this history in newspapers, in memoirs, and in archives outside the control of the state of New York, I was still able to rescue and recount the story of Attica. And, because of two extraordinarily lucky breaks I had while I was trying to write this book, the history you are about to read is one that state officials very much hoped would not be told. First, in 2006, 
I stumbled upon a cache of Attica documents at the Erie County Courthouse in Buffalo, New York, that changed everything. I had, for two years, been calling and writing every county courthouse and coroner's office and municipal building in upstate New York in order to find any Attica-related records that had not been placed under lock and key by the Office of the Attorney General or sealed by a judge. I had little to go on in these early years. I didn't have case numbers to search. I knew few names to inquire about. But one day I hit pay dirt. I was on the phone with a woman from the Erie County Courthouse who thought that a bunch of Attica papers had recently been placed in the back room there. They had been somewhere else, but had been moved to the office of the clerk, perhaps after suffering some water damage. I headed to Buffalo. When I walked into that dim file room at the courthouse, I was taken aback. In front of me, in complete disarray on floor-to-ceiling metal shelves, were literally thousands of pages of Attica documents. In this mess was everything from grand jury testimony, to depositions and indictments, to memos and personal letters. Most stunningly, though, I found in this mountain of moldy papers vital information from the very heart of the state's own investigation into whether crimes had been committed during the rebellion or the retaking of the prison. In short, I had found a great deal of what the state knew and when it knew it, not the least of which was what evidence it thought it had against members of law enforcement who were never indicted. I took as many notes as I could take and Xeroxed as many pages as they would let me, and finally had much of what I needed to write a history of Attica that no one yet knew. Then, in 2011, I had another incredibly lucky break. I had just published an op-ed in the New York Times on the occasion of Attica's 40th anniversary when I received an email from Craig Williams, an archivist at the New York State Museum, who wanted help making sense of a new trove of materials he had received from the New York State Police. Troopers had just turned over an entire Quonset hut full of items they had gathered from the prison yards of Attica immediately after the four-day standoff there in 1971. Items that the state considered evidence in the cases that it might make against prisoners or troopers. I was thrilled to hear this and soon headed to Albany. When I got to the museum's cavernous warehouse, I was glad to be joined by Christine Christopher, a filmmaker making a documentary on Attica with whom I had been working closely. Together we just stood for a while, staring at rows and rows of cartons, boxes, bags, and crates of materials that had been removed from the prison 40 years before. And what had been gathered and hidden away for those many decades turned out to be grim indeed. In one particularly mangled container lay a heap of clothing, the dirty, rumpled pants and shirt of a slain correction officer, Carl Vallone. His clothing wasn't soiled merely with decades-old mud from Attica's D-yard. It was stiff and stained with blood. I had met two of Carl Vallone's kids who were still desperate for answers regarding what, exactly, had happened to their father on September 13, 1971. And this was just one box. Next to it sat another in which I found the now rigid, blood-soaked clothing of Attica prisoner Elliot L.D. Barkley. Like Carl Vallone, L.D. Barkley had been gunned down during Attica's retaking. I had met one of his family members, too, 
LD's younger sister, Tracy. She, like every one of the Valone kids, was also still haunted by Attica. Although the detritus of Attica that the NYSP had saved in these many boxes revealed little new about why this event played out as it did, it was a harrowing reminder of its human toll. There was a dog-eared red spiral notebook filled with messages written by the prisoners who had survived the retaking. Men who had hoped these pages could somehow be smuggled out so that their families and friends might know that they were still alive. There were also cartons of torn and faded photographs of prisoners' loved ones, countless legal proceedings that the prisoners had painstakingly copied, and even their Bibles and Korans, all of which had been ripped out of cells in the aftermath of the rebellion. All of the Attica files that I saw in that dark room of the Erie County Courthouse have now vanished, and all of the Attica artifacts that the New York State Museum had been willing to share have also been removed from anyone's view. But all that I learned from those documents back in 2006 can't be unlearned, and all of the boxes of bloody Attica clothes and heartbreaking letters written by Attica's prisoners that I saw back in 2011 can't be unseen. And I have decided to include all that I have learned and seen in this book. That said, this decision was agonizing. Although my job as a historian is to write the past as it was, not as I wished it had been, I have no desire to cause anyone pain in the present. I am well aware, and it haunts me, that my decision to name individuals who have spent the last 45 years trying to remain unnamed will reopen many old wounds and cause much new suffering. That old wounds were never allowed to heal, and that new suffering is now a certainty, however, is, I believe, the responsibility of officials in the state of New York. It is these officials who have chosen repeatedly, since 1971, to protect the politicians and members of law enforcement who caused so much trauma. It is these officials who could have, and should have, told the whole truth about Attica long ago, so that the healing could have begun, and Attica's history would have been just that. History, not present-day politics and pain. Of course, even this book can't promise Attica survivors the full story. The state of New York still sits on many secrets. This book does vow, however, to recount all that I was able to uncover. And by doing that, at least, perhaps a bit more justice will be done. Part 1 The Tinderbox Frank Big Black Smith Frank Big Black Smith wondered if he would ever get used to being locked up. His cell felt like a casket with the lid left off just far enough for noise, bugs, and weather to get in, and conditions outside of that cage were also grim. Greenhaven Correctional Facility was no place for human beings to live. Frank Smith had been born in Bennettsville, South Carolina, on September 11, 1933, to Henry Parker and Millie Smith. Millie spent long days laboring in the same fields that her family members had been forced to work under slavery. As her son grew older, however, Millie became determined to leave the South to forge a better life. When Frank was five years old, she and Henry finally found the courage to move to Brooklyn. However, jobs were hard to find and poorly paid in this vast northern city, 
and the family struggled there as well. Frank's father eventually turned to gambling and other street hustles to make ends meet. And by the time Frank was a teenager, he, like his father, had mastered the art of running numbers on the streets of Bedford-Stuyvesant. In 1969, and not for the first time, his luck ran out. That was the year he discovered that the problem with running games was that eventually someone owes money that they can't or won't pay. When Frank burst into a dice game with a loaded gun and took money that he felt he was owed, the next thing he knew, he was bunking behind cement walls in one of the most rural parts of New York State. The other prisoners at Greenhaven tended to leave Frank Smith alone. Smith was a huge, thick-necked man with closely cropped hair and a deep, booming voice. He was not political, so the Black Panthers, the various Muslim organizations, the anti-war rebels, and the Maoists in the prison had little use for him. Big Black, as he was known by all there, wasn't particularly religious either, so the various Christian cliques also kept their distance. Big Black was just a man doing his time. His goals were simple. Keep a low profile, tick off the days, and get back to Brooklyn. In 1970, Big Black found himself transferred to Attica Correctional Facility, where he spent his days pulling smelly, soiled garments out of the massive rolling carts that crowded its steamy laundry room. All around him that summer and into the fall, Attica's prisoners were buzzing with the news that there had been a series of dramatic rebellions in New York City's jails. From the notorious facility known as the Tombs to the Queen's House of Detention, thousands of prisoners had been taking over their facilities and demanding major reforms. Teams of sympathetic observers were sent in to negotiate with them, which included two U.S. representatives from New York, Shirley Chisholm and Herman Badillo, and even the mayor of New York City himself, John Lindsay. Some of these rebellions ended quietly after intensive discussions. Others ended when guards retook the prison with their nightsticks. There were no fatalities. Afterward, city officials decided that the quickest way to deal with one of the most obvious prisoner complaints, severe overcrowding, was to send as many men as possible to upstate facilities. In other words, to push the problem up the line rather than solve it. Rumor had it that many of these men were being sent to Attica. As Big Black sorted through the piles of dirty shirts and sheets before him, sent over from Superintendent Vincent Mancusi's mansion, he wondered wearily just how much more crowded Attica could get before it too would blow. One. Not so greener pastures. If a man had lived his whole life in Brooklyn or the Bronx, the journey to Attica was profoundly disorienting. Within an hour of boarding one of the Department of Correctional Services' many vans ferrying newly sentenced prisoners upstate, all he could see out of the scratched-up bulletproof window was miles and miles of cows, barns, and land. After getting off the highway in Batavia, the vans headed down the two-lane road connecting this small town to the even smaller village of Attica. Here, the faces were all white. Here, the men drove pickup trucks rather than pushed their way through subway turnstiles. Here, the landscape consisted of rolling hills, not bodegas and burned-out buildings. The sign welcoming visitors to Attica, New York, 
boasted a population of less than 3,000. Fewer people than lived in many of the urban neighborhoods that Attica's prisoners called home. Attica, New York, was a part of America that for most of these prisoners existed only on TV. The town's tiny storefronts were quaint. It had a pretty park, complete with a gaily adorned bandstand, a Little League pitcher's mound, and a sparkling public pool, all straight out of a Norman Rockwell painting. Yet just beyond this slice of Americana loomed a massive and most forbidding fortress, one of New York's most notorious maximum security prisons. Less than a mile from the village was the Attica Correctional Facility, enclosed by massive gray walls. Each 30-foot slab was cemented 12 feet deep into the ground, and on each corner perched a gun tower from which guards could scan the 55-acre penal complex for any trouble. From the parking lot, newly arriving prisoners could make out the shapes of the men who paced within those red-tiled towers, ready to fire either into or outside the prison in the blink of an eye. The contrast between this colossal and intimidating facility and its bucolic environs was something to behold. As men were delivered to Attica's front entrance, and just before they were ushered through its massive doors, most could not help but steal one final glance back across the road. Even as guards yelled at them to get inside, it was hard not to be lulled by the rhythmic hum of a million crickets echoing from the tall grasses of the neighboring wildflower-sprinkled pasture. Entering this high-security prison was another jolt. The building was archaic, hardly modernized since it first opened during the Great Depression. And it was crowded with bodies, jam-packed with anxious and angry men, young and old, from cities and small towns all across the state of New York. Attica's 2,243 prisoners were overwhelmingly young, urban, undereducated, and African-American or Puerto Rican. More than two-thirds of the men at Attica had been incarcerated at least once before arriving there. That is not to say, though, that Attica's men were all hardened criminals. Many had been sent to Attica simply because they had violated parole, including some who were much too young to navigate life in a maximum security prison. James and John Schley were 19-year-old twins who had landed in Attica for parole violations. John's original conviction had been for the unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, and his brother James had come before the court for cutting a hole in a lady's convertible top. Even though he had bought the lady a new top, he still got time. Another young Attica prisoner, 21-year-old Elliot L.D. Barkley, had been sent to Attica for violating his parole by driving without a license. Increasingly younger men had also been landing in Attica because of their drug addiction. One 17-year-old Puerto Rican kid, Angel Martinez, had become an addict after shooting heroin to try to alleviate the pain of polio. When he then committed a crime to feed his habit, the judge sent him to Attica. Ending up in this particular New York State prison was especially rough on prisoners like Martinez, since they could neither speak nor understand English. There was one Spanish-speaking Puerto Rican correction officer on staff, but his fellow officers insisted that he only use English with the men in his charge. Whatever brought someone to Attica, once there his routine varied little. 
After passing through the entrance in the massive concrete facade, officers would assign each prisoner to a housing block. Attica had five main housing blocks, A, B, C, D, and E. There was also housing block Z, an area of the prison known as HBZ, or The Box, where officers placed men for disciplinary reasons. Each of the five main housing blocks held 500 prisoners. Each block had its own exercise yard, and each was divided into 12 different groups of 40 to 45 men known as companies. All of the cell blocks save E were three stories high and divided into two wings. The cells in these wings looked in 1970 just as they had when the prison was built in the 1930s, except that by 1970, the bars had become thick with rust and layers of peeling paint. Even though Attica's cell blocks were equally uninviting, which one was assigned to could make a big difference. For one thing, the cells in some blocks had bars, while others were enclosed by steel doors with small viewing slots. The former offered little privacy, but the latter were claustrophobic. While some of Attica's cell blocks had little to no heat, and the wind howled through the cement walls, others were so hot one could barely breathe. Where one bunked also determined where one worked. Attica's most menial and hardest jobs, such as shoveling the endless piles of snow in the harsh winter months, were done by the so-called grading companies. The best jobs were those in the commissary, the laundry, and the hospital. Being a clerk or a messenger in the administration building was also considered a step up. No matter what the job, few of Attica's prisoners earned more than six cents a day in 1970. The lucky ones were paid $2.90 for a full day's work, which was still much less than a man needed to survive at this facility. The men needed money at Attica because the state offered them only a few items gratis. These included a thin gray coat, two gray work shirts, three pairs of gray pants, one pair of shoes, three pairs of underwear, six pairs of socks, and one comb. Then, every month, prisoners would receive one bar of soap and one roll of toilet paper, which meant that men were forced to limit themselves to one sheet per day. The state's food budget allotment was also meager. At a mere 63 cents per prisoner per day, it was insufficient to meet the minimum dietary standards as determined by federal guidelines. The reality was that many men at Attica went to bed hungry. For this reason, jobs in the kitchen or the mess hall, while more arduous than others given their seven-day-a-week schedule, were some of the most coveted. At least on those jobs, a man could eat leftovers. To get anything beyond the supplies given them, warmer clothes, more food, toiletries like toothbrushes, toothpaste, deodorant, shampoo, razors, and extra toilet paper, prisoners needed money. Being able to buy deodorant was no luxury since these men were allowed only one shower a week and were given only two quarts of water a day. With this water, prisoners were expected to wash their socks and underwear, shave, brush their teeth, and cleaned the cell to a correction officer's exacting standards. Attica's men could rarely rely on their families to send funds to meet their basic needs, because they too were usually impoverished. Nearly half of Attica's prisoners came from the New York City area. To visit them, it would cost family members $33.55 for a bus ticket to Batavia, the city nearest to Attica with a depot. 
Since there was no public transportation to and from that bus depot, they would also need cab fare. For loved ones who did manage to come up with the more than $100 of travel expenses and 20 hours of time away from a job required to visit the prison, there was rarely money left over to buy food for themselves, let alone assist the relative they had come to see. The constant hustling for adequate supplies took its toll on prisoners' morale and went a long way toward escalating tensions at the facility. Atticus men spent 15 to 24 hours of every day in their cells. They were bored, frustrated, and on edge. Crammed into each tiny cell was a bed, a toilet, and a basin, which left barely enough room for a man to move around. Most of the men were allowed 31 to 100 minutes a day in one of the prison's four exercise yards to run or stretch their muscles. Unfortunately, many months of the year, the temperature was well below freezing, so even a break from one cell could be most uncomfortable. One benefit of being inside the cell, even if oppressive, might have been the opportunity to read or listen to the radio. And yet, Attica had no newspapers very few books to share, and nothing at all to read in Spanish. Attica did subscribe to a few magazines, including such unlikely selections as Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, American Home, and House Beautiful. If a prisoner wanted anything else to read, he had to have it sent to him from the outside. And even then, he might not actually receive the publication since administrators confiscated a great many books and newspapers they considered inappropriate. As for listening to the radio, the prison piped in only three static-ridden stations, which all stopped broadcasting at 11 o'clock p.m. Since the men were forbidden from talking in their cells after 8 o'clock p.m., evenings passed very slowly. There were scores of rules governing the daily behavior of Attica's prisoners that were, on the whole, petty, and thus netted men frequent punishment. Breaking rules usually resulted in a man facing keep lock, a slang term for being confined to his cell 24 hours a day for an indefinite number of days. Often this sanction was imposed for trivial violations, such as talking on the way to the mess hall. Yet the no-talking rule that was supposed to be in effect when a company walked from one part of the prison to another was enforced by some guards, and ignored by others. Many of Attica's prisoners coped with their living conditions creatively. In order to heat water to make hot drinks and thus ward off the chill, for example, they devised their own electrical units called droppers. They would take two razor blades, put matchsticks between them, and wrap them in thread or string. By using paper clips to hook a piece of lamp cord to this contraption, and then placing the entire mechanism into water, they could generate heat via electrolysis. Even though the prison administration had deemed these heaters contraband, and being caught with one could land a man in serious trouble, nearly every cell had one, and for the most part they were tolerated. The bottom line, according to one outsider who later interviewed over 1,600 of Attica's prisoners, was that almost all of the men at Attica, including the acclimated ones, were deeply frustrated by the inconsistencies. The fact that Keeplock was used to force their labor also generated anger. When teenager Angel Martinez begged off work for two days because he was in intense pain from his polio, guards confined him to his cramped cell for a full month. 
The men at Attica worried a great deal about remaining as healthy as possible while serving their time, not only because they had to work even when ill. This vast facility had just two doctors, Selden T. Williams and Paul G. Sternberg. The pair came to Attica between 8 o'clock and 8.30 every morning to address the medical needs of the 100 to 125 prisoners who showed up for sick call each day. Dr. Williams had worked at Attica since 1949, Dr. Sternberg since 1957. These physicians usually required prisoners to describe their problems through a mesh screen and rarely gave them a physical examination. Most men were sent away with an aspirin. For prisoners with chronic health issues like Big Black Smith, who had serious dental problems, this meant that initially minor issues often grew acute. During his few years at Attica, Big Black lost almost all of his teeth because Attica's doctors had refused to give him a referral to a dentist. Dr. Williams and Dr. Sternberg were particularly unresponsive to the medical needs of Attica's Puerto Rican population. Neither of them spoke Spanish, and neither ever asked correction officials for interpreters. The only way Angel Martinez was able to communicate to the doctors the intense pain in his legs was to roll his pants up to show them the swelling. Even so, they did nothing to help him. These doctors did even less for the men who had been placed in housing block Z. One man in this segregated unit had broken bones in his hand and was in such pain that he couldn't move his fingers. When he begged Dr. Sternberg to help him, Sternberg turned his back and told him to write a letter to a different doctor. Attica's doctors were so regularly unresponsive to the medical needs of the prisoners that at one point in 1969, the civilian staff of E-Block actually tried to take action. That year, a 30-year-old E-Block prisoner had died under Dr. Williams' care, and the staff decided to have a meeting to discuss holding the doctor accountable. They debated a couple of options, including picketing the doctor's private practice, writing the newspaper with details of the prisoner's death, and writing to a congressman and or having prisoners write their congressman. Another wanted to go much further and bring Dr. Williams before the district attorney of the county to have him charged with malpractice. But in the end, nothing came of these plans, and Dr. Williams changed nothing about the way he dealt with the prisoners in his care. From time to time, prisoners' family members tried to intervene to get better medical care for their loved ones. One woman was so distressed by her son's lack of needed treatment at Attica that she enlisted the aid of one of the leaders of FIGHT, a community organization in Rochester. This minister in turn wrote to the deputy commissioner at the Department of Correctional Services, DOCS, to let him know that, unless the situation is taken care of by your staff, we will be forced to send our own doctors in to examine the prisoner. Rather than investigate the situation, however, this prison official took umbrage and merely responded, There is nothing in any law giving you permission to send doctors in to examine any prisoner. Although prison officials weren't eager to press Attica's doctors to provide prisoners better care, they were willing to allow medical experimentation on them. One physician, employed by both Rochester and Strong Memorial Hospitals, conducted studies of the immune response system to a viral infection at Attica. The doctor knew that he needed volunteers for his ongoing research, but finding a stable population of volunteers was not easy. 
Therefore, he was most grateful when he got permission to use Attica's men. Because becoming a test subject offered the men in Attica some needed money, more than a few agreed to be exposed to the test virus. Although the doctor made sure that prisoners signed an informed consent agreement, as he later conceded, one could argue about how informed they were. The overwhelming disregard for the health of the men in Attica certainly eroded their morale, but so did other things about the way the state's correctional system operated, such as the workings of the parole process. Being allowed to leave Attica early on parole was, of course, the dream of every prisoner. But the way in which a man might earn parole was shrouded in mystery. Once a month, the parole board came to Attica, but it was never clear why some men qualified for early release and others didn't. As one prisoner noted, it's so arbitrary. Even for those who did somehow make parole, their elation was usually short-lived, since they could not actually leave Attica until they secured a job on the outside. To make this happen, the men were handed a long, outdated phone book so that they could find the addresses of businesses they might contact in order to secure employment. Because many of the prisoners could barely write, and all had to pay for both paper and postage, trying to find a job in this manner proved extremely difficult. Prisoners were known to save their money and to write as many as two or three hundred letters and stay imprisoned long past parole was awarded before any response was received. So capricious was Attica's parole process that even correction officers recognized the problem. Having prisoners face repeated disappointments and feel cheated out of earned time off made their own jobs much harder. Prison life was also made unnecessarily tense because administrators routinely cut corners. A number of correction officers thought that prisoners should be offered more vocational and educational training opportunities instead of just being warehoused, but the DOCS always cited its severe budgetary constraints as barriers. Administrators also failed to provide the prisoners sufficient food because they were told to watch the bottom line. As one correction officer put it frustratedly, if you can spend an extra dollar on feeding, it would solve a lot of our problems. But according to state officials, even for obvious necessities, money was in short supply. Only 6.19% of Attica's operating budget was allotted to food, 0.69% to medical supplies, 1.6% to academic and vocational training, and 1.65% for clothing. Though resources were limited for all of the prisoners, it was obvious that some of them suffered worse hardships than others because of the highly discriminatory way that prison officials ran the institution. While everyone at Attica had to work and run various cons to supplement his basic supplies, African Americans and Puerto Ricans had to hustle a great deal more because their work usually paid much less. Even though only 37% of the prisoner population was white, Whites held 74% of the jobs in Attica's powerhouse, 67% of the coveted clerk positions, and 62% of the staff jobs in the officer's mess hall. By contrast, 76% of the men in the dreaded and low-paid metal shop and 80% in the grueling grading companies were African-American or Puerto Rican. Even when whites worked the worst jobs, it was common for them to start off at a higher pay rate. Sometimes racial discrimination operated in ways that hit the men at Attica particularly personally.
For instance, although all prisoners were, theoretically, subject to male censorship, in practical terms it was disproportionately the black and Puerto Rican inmates who suffered most from the policy. Every month, an administrative committee would review which publications should be censored, but overwhelmingly it was the titles requested by the prisoners of color that made it onto the prohibited list. Whether it was a black community newspaper such as the Amsterdam News or the Buffalo Challenger, or a religious publication such as the Messenger or Muhammad Speaks, rarely would the reading materials requested by non-white prisoners make it past the mailroom. For reasons they never had to justify, prison officials considered these materials too dangerous to allow. As one lawyer for the DOCS put it, the rules for the black Muslims were, in general, the same as those applied to other religious sects, except that you should exercise greater caution and vigil with this group. Meanwhile, any letter written in Spanish, or any Spanish-language publication, did not even have to be considered inflammatory to be confiscated. If something was not in English, it was thrown out. Puerto Rican and African-American prisoners were subject to far more stringent rules when it came to family visitation as well. 26.6% of all Puerto Ricans and 20.4% of all blacks in Attica were in common-law relationships, but prison policy was clear that no common-law wives or children from those unions were allowed to visit. Even letters between common-law partners were confiscated. In one such letter, a prisoner wrote to the mother of his child and told her how she might try to reach him while he was incarcerated at Attica. Darling, I know you'll be surprised to get this, so please read it carefully several times. I had it smuggled out. When you write, make sure that you don't make a mistake and write your name. In case her letters still didn't get through, he went on, I listened to WMYR Rochester from 6.30 to 7.30 in the evening after supper. You call in and he will give requests. I will be able to hear your voice on the earphones. Ask him to play I'm So Afraid of Losing You and say hi to me. I will start listening as soon as I mail this. So obvious was the racial discrimination at Attica that white prisoners readily agreed that guards applied rules differently to blacks and Puerto Ricans. While such discrimination did its part to escalate tensions at Attica, so too did the deepening problem of overcrowding that increased stress for prisoners and correction officers alike. As Attica grew ever more crowded during the late 1960s, rather than hire more officers, prison management instead decided to put existing employees in charge of ever greater numbers of prisoners. Officer John Stockholm couldn't believe when he came to Attica in 1971 and realized he was in charge of approximately 60 to 70 inmates at one time. Sometimes we would take up to 120 inmates to breakfast. The fact that prison administrators expected a single officer to accompany two or even three companies of men to the mess hall, to their jobs, and to the exercise yard several times a day, completely on their own, and with only a nightstick at their side, generated enormous anxiety for those guards and made prisoners fearful as well. The truth was that the only thing that kept the prison running smoothly under these circumstances was that the prisoners usually followed the rules and did what the officer in charge asked them to do. But as the number of men at Attica grew, order and calm were harder to come by. Significantly, the profile of the average prisoner coming to Attica had changed.
Many more prisoners were young, politically aware, and determined to speak out when they saw injustices in the facility. These were black and brown youth who had been deeply impacted by the civil rights struggles of this period, as well as by the writings of Malcolm X, Mao, and Che Guevara. These younger men made it clear that they were more willing to stand up for themselves, less likely to put up with poor treatment than were Attica's veterans. Correction officers found this new type of prisoner alarming, and their fear and suspicion of these more outspoken men further exacerbated tensions. Time and again, Attica's COs, believing they had to start coming down harder on these younger, more militant prisoners, resorted to the very intimidation, verbal abuse, and petty rule enforcement that virtually guaranteed a militant prisoner response. These increased expressions of solidarity and inmate militancy in turn made Attica's correction officers even more aggressive. While most officers knew deep down that their own safety depended on making sure that prisoners felt, as one put it, a sense of respect and a feeling that all the legitimate grievances are being attended to, many COs were too bitter, angry, and even frightened to put those principles into practice. The truth was that most of the correction officers at Attica had little familiarity with African Americans or Puerto Ricans, and little connection to the cities where these prisoners had grown up. The officers were from small towns across western New York, overwhelmingly white, Catholic villages like Attica, where high school graduates had few job prospects save a career in corrections. In 1970, Attica Prison employed 398 locals ranging in age from 22 to 60. A young man starting out as a CO earned between $8,500 and $9,600 per year. And after 15 years on the job, he was still making under $12,000. Many officers had to work two jobs to make ends meet, and thus were always bone-tired in addition to being on edge. Perhaps most significantly, these men had received virtually no training for their jobs at the prison. When new hires first reported for duty, they were handed a stick, a badge, and a uniform and then put in charge of a company of 40 or so prisoners. With only 19 supervisors, the nearly 400 men who made up the CO staff were left mainly to their own devices to figure out how to deal with the ever-growing number of prisoners. The lack of training and direction from the prison administration frustrated and angered the COs a great deal. They blamed their superiors for the fact that they were working in an increasingly dangerous and hostile workplace. COs began demanding that their union, Council 82 AFSCME, American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, negotiate more pay for their work, as well as more hires to walk the cell blocks so that they would be safer. Yet, even in the wake of the uprisings in the New York City jails in the summer and fall of 1970, Attica's administrators and the prison officials in Albany did virtually nothing to address either the COs or the prisoners' concerns. If anything, administrators at Attica had begun to clamp down even more on the men in their charge and to turn an even deafer ear to the complaints of their COs as the year 1970 wore on. In no small part, this was because Attica's prisoners had initiated their own very bold protest to improve conditions even before the New York City jails had erupted. On July 29, 1970, prisoners working in Attica's hated metal shop 
had sat down and refused to work until someone raised their wages, which, they insisted, were so low that working at Attica is tantamount to slavery. These men had been making between six cents and 29 cents per day. But prison officials were then keeping back half of that pay until the men were released, which meant that they had too little each week to buy necessities at the exorbitant commissary prices. The men locked up at Attica had long been sensitive about the exploitation of their labor, particularly once one of them, a white prisoner named Sam Melville, did some research into the economics of the metal shop, the commissary, and the prison laundry, and then wrote a mini-treatise, Anatomy of the Laundry. By mid-1970, copies of his short expose could be found in many an Attica cell, had the men also known that Attica netted the state of New York almost $1.2 million in sales off of their labor between 1969 and 1970, they might well have been even more outraged than they already were. The July 1970 protest started out quietly. The prisoners sent a small delegation of men to meet with their supervisor. However, this effort at peaceful negotiation failed. Superintendent Vincent Mancusi had the members of the delegation put into keep lock and then arranged for other men he suspected of stirring up trouble to be transferred out of Attica altogether. Mancusi's actions so enraged the metal shop workers that they called for a full-scale strike. At first, it was only B-block prisoners who refused to work because it was men from their block who had been keep locked. But when Mancusi locked down that entire cell block for striking, the next day, almost all 450 of the men in the metal shop refused to work. Flustered, Mancusi called the commissioner of correction, Paul McGinnis, to make sure he knew of this prisoner recalcitrance. Rather uncharacteristically, Commissioner McGinnis decided not to further punish the strikers and instead agreed to talk with them once they had elected two representatives to present their position. Thanks to those discussions, those who were making six cents in Attica's metal shop got a raise to 25, and the maximum allowable hourly rate went from 29 cents to $1 per day. But the metal shop strike of 1970 proved a Pyrrhic victory. Even though the metal shop workers had protested peacefully and had assured COs when they began that they intended no harm and merely wanted to demonstrate the extent of their grievances, Superintendent Mancusi was determined to make them pay for their actions. In the wake of this rebellion, once Commissioner McGinnis had returned to Albany, Mancusi suddenly transferred a number of the strikers whom he had previously keep-locked over to the dreaded housing Block Z. Mancusi viewed prisoner activism as the work of black militant troublemakers who needed to be watched with particular care and shut up the instant they spoke out. His perspective mirrored that of an increasing number of state and national politicians by the year 1970. It was past time, they believed, to get tough on anyone who bucked authority, and even tougher on anyone who had broken a law. 2. Responding to Resistance In the early 1960s, Northern cities, including Philadelphia, Rochester, and New York, were the sites of particularly intense urban rebellions against seemingly intractable discrimination and the lack of jobs, as well as against the abusive actions of law enforcement. 
although northern politicians had been relatively sympathetic when such racial uprisings rocked southern cities like Birmingham, Alabama. When they witnessed upheaval in their own downtowns, they were greatly unnerved. Northern politicians very quickly began responding to the unrest and anger they saw on their city streets, just as their southern counterparts had. They sought to discredit these protests as the behavior of a criminal element bent on destruction. By 1965, politicians from both North and South, and from both major political parties, were routinely equating urban disorder with urban criminality. All agreed not only that crime was fast becoming the nation's most serious problem, but also that it was well past time to wage a major new war against it. Although the election of Richard Nixon in 1968 is commonly assumed to have signaled the beginning of America's law and order moment, the dramatic shift in focus from liberalization and reform in the first half of the 1960s to maintaining civic order and fighting crime had actually first begun during the administration of Lyndon Johnson. With the same enthusiasm that led him to authorize the Office of Economic Opportunity and sign the Civil Rights Act of 1964, President Johnson, a liberal Democrat, created the Office of Law Enforcement Assistance, OLEA, in 1965, not only granting a wholly new level of funding to law enforcement and prisons, but also creating the bureaucracy necessary to wage a historically unprecedented war on crime. The Law Enforcement Assistance Act of 1965 and the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968 lavished even more federal funds on fighting crime. In addition, landmark Supreme Court decisions, such as Terry v. Ohio, which gave the police virtually unlimited powers to stop and frisk citizens without probable cause, intensified the policing of poor neighborhoods and people of color, which, in turn, resulted in record arrest rates. Before long, prisons like Attica were bursting at the seams. This profound shift in public policy, a watershed moment that would eventually lead to the United States imprisoning more people than any other country on the globe, had depended upon a serious misperception regarding just how dire America's crime problem really was. In 1964, when federal and state officials first embraced the more punitive laws and more aggressive policing, the nation's crime rate was historically unremarkable. Indeed, the national murder rate was only 5.1 per 100,000 when Johnson created OLEA, whereas in 1921 it had been 8.1, and in 1933 was 9.7. As the 1960s wore on, governors and mayors, from conservative Republicans to liberal Democrats, committed themselves to waging a major war on crime in America's most fragile communities. However, just because support for America's new war on crime was bipartisan didn't mean its origins weren't politically complex. This was perhaps most or particularly true for Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller, New York's governor since 1959, when he decided to get tougher on crime. Rockefeller had been a lifelong Republican, but he had routinely found himself in the liberal wing of his own party. Historically, this had benefited him mightily. He was, for example, one of the few of his party to survive the Lyndon Johnson landslide of 1964. But Rockefeller had ambitions beyond New York. A savvy politician, 
he increasingly realized that the liberal reputation that had earned him such a following in New York was fast becoming a liability, especially if he hoped to win his party's nomination for the presidency. Throughout the 1960s, he had watched Richard Nixon slowly but surely steal his political thunder across the nation. And so, by the close of the decade, Rockefeller had begun to craft a more conservative and more traditionally Republican image for himself. In 1970, Rockefeller made no bones about the fact that he too would be tough on crime. This had suddenly become the platform that could get a man elected. However, when Rockefeller put a new commissioner in charge of administering the state's corrections apparatus in 1971, he chose an outspoken reformer named Russell G. Oswald. Oswald had run the parole systems of both Wisconsin and Massachusetts before coming to New York, and he also held a degree in social work. As co-chair of the Special Committee on Criminal Offenders, a panel described as having grown out of the governor's concern about the increase in crime rate and out of his intention to search for new solutions, Oswald had been instrumental in pushing for the 1970 legislation that created the New York Department of Correctional Services, DOCS, a new unified department to deal with both those who were incarcerated and those who were on parole. In January of 1971, Rockefeller appointed him its head. When Oswald took the reins from Paul McGinnis, the commissioner who had helped negotiate the end of the Attica metal shop strike the preceding year, he was determined to lead his DOCS in a bold new direction. Oswald, a squat, portly man who always looked harried and slightly unkempt, came across as kind-hearted. He considered his new job an opportunity to improve the lives of prisoners and parolees. By renaming prisons, jails, and reformatories correctional facilities, redubbing prison guards as correction officers, and calling prisoners inmates, Oswald felt that he was sending a message about his intention to professionalize and humanize prisons. Governor Rockefeller may have viewed Oswald's role as providing safety and security for the law-abiding citizen, but Oswald himself wanted to make a bigger mark, intending, as he put it, to move towards nothing less than the marked reduction of men in the traditional prisons and toward an atmosphere of community lifestyle, even though in a confining situation. As he saw it, one could not expect an individual to adapt to a normal setting when he is placed for long periods of time in a totally abnormal setting. Shortly after taking over as Commissioner of Corrections, Oswald wrote a memo to the governor in which he pushed for reforms as well as the funding to institute them. He made clear that prisoners across the state had been clamoring for meaningful changes and that, in his opinion, doing nothing would lead to uncontrollable frustrations, hostility, and anger. Having men locked 12 or more hours a day in their cells is unacceptable to them and me. He added, however, that to attempt to bring about change with no new positions and seriously restricted funds is courting big trouble. Oswald was acutely aware that there were a few specific trouble spots in New York's prison system, places that were more potentially explosive than others, and he insisted that the governor allocate more funds to avert any disaster. To assist his efforts, Oswald had hired a deputy commissioner who seemed to share his views on the need for penal reforms. 
Walter Dunbar was a pipe-smoking man with horn-rimmed glasses and a long and impressive resume. He had served on the U.S. Board of Parole as the director of California's Department of Corrections and had been president of the American Correctional Association. Governor Rockefeller agreed with his new commissioner that prison problems should be dealt with forthrightly and immediately. The prisoner rebellions that had erupted in jails and prisons across New York in the summer and early fall of 1970 had persuaded him that something had to be done. But he tended to believe the answer was to coddle prisoners less, whereas New York City's mayor, John Lindsay, had been willing to concede that the jail protesters had some legitimate demands and had even agreed eventually to meet with them, Rockefeller, a cold warrior to his core, viewed any prisoner agitation as part of a larger leftist plot, just one more step toward the ultimate destruction of the country. Still, Rockefeller could see the merit of endorsing some reforms. First and foremost, it might undercut support for the prison revolutionaries, and thus might halt what his former commissioner had termed an acceleration of the post-war incidents of social deviance and protests. Since at least 1960, Rockefeller had been hearing from his then Department of Corrections board that some serious reforms were needed, particularly in the provision of medical care and with regard to prisoner morale as a result of incipient overcrowding. Now it seemed more prudent than ever to deal with these concerns. Rockefeller was glad to have Oswald in charge. He had met few penal professionals with such optimism about tackling corrections' myriad problems. But even Oswald's bright outlook began to dim almost immediately after taking the helm. On his predecessor's watch, there recently had been a major prisoner rebellion at the Auburn Correctional Facility, one of upstate New York's largest and most troubled prisons. Whereas Oswald had been hoping to work on new programs for prisoners, he was instead forced to deal with the fallout from that uprising. 3. Voices from Auburn Located 30 miles west of Syracuse, Auburn was another forbidding-looking complex of prison buildings surrounded by imposing walls and anchored by gun towers at its corners. Auburn's historical claim to fame was that it had hosted the country's first execution by electrocution, and in 1970, it was known for being one of New York's most overcrowded facilities. Three months after the metal shop strike at Attica, a group of Auburn prisoners asked their superintendent to let them commemorate Black Solidarity Day. Just as Attica's prisoners had become more politically aware and active, so had Auburn's. There were various political organizations at Auburn, and two of the most organized of these were the Black Muslims, affiliated with either the Nation of Islam or some offshoot group, and the Black Panther Party. As one of the leading Black Panthers at Auburn explained, the men's desire for a Black Solidarity Day celebration, you have days for all your white heroes. We want our days. The superintendent told the men to write to Commissioner McGinnis, but the commissioner punted the decision back to Auburn's superintendent. By the time the day arrived, November 2, no decision had been made, so the black Muslim prisoners grabbed a microphone in the exercise yard and announced that in honor of Black Solidarity Day, no black man should work today. Following this announcement, 
Three or four men blocked the doors to the yard so that COs could not enter. For the next six hours, much of Auburn's African-American workforce remained in the yard listening to speeches instead of showing up for their assigned jobs. Aside from a few minor scuffles as the men were ushered back to their cells for the evening headcount, the day's work stoppage had been peaceful and seemed cathartic for the participants. Feeling that things had ended well that day, and also to ward off any possible eruption as prisoners headed inside from the yard, Auburn's correction officers assured them that prisoners would not be punished for their actions. But then Auburn administrators overrode the rank-and-file officers and decided to place 14 men they identified as leaders of the protest on indefinite keep lock. This betrayal was like a flame to kindling. The following morning, 400 Auburn prisoners, both black and white, refused to line up to report for work and demanded the release of those in keep lock. Meanwhile, others gathered in the main yard to see what prison officials would do. After consulting with correction officials in Albany, Auburn prison administrators refused to meet with these men to discuss their demands. Chaos ensued, and amid the cacophony of shouting, yelling, and smashing glass, groups of men in the yard began arming themselves with makeshift weapons while taking hostage approximately 50 COs and civilian personnel. While the prisoners protected most of these men, some were not so fortunate. In addition to four men being badly beaten up, one was cracked over the head with his own nightstick when he refused to surrender it. Eventually, the prisoners brought all of the hostages to the center of the yard, where, to prevent further assaults, the black Muslims formed a protective circle around them. To keep them warm in the cool November air, other prisoners gave these terrified men blankets. Then, as all of the men began settling in for the night, the prisoners composed a list of demands that included the following 12 items. 1. More Spanish-speaking correction officers and counselors. 2. More black culture courses. 3. Better medical care and treatment. 4. Fire incompetent psychiatric staff. 5. Better quality commissary items and lower prices. 6. Improved parole proceedings. 7. Better clothing. For example, rubbers for wear in the muddy yard. 8. Better food and sanitary conditions. 9. Better good time programs. 10. Improved law library. 11. More frequent review by parole board of life sentence prisoners. 12. Protection from reprisals. After a six-hour standoff, Prison officials promised these men that if they surrendered peacefully and released the hostages, they would be able to meet with a correction official to discuss their demands. More important, they gave their word that no prisoners would suffer reprisals. While the former pledge was fulfilled, the latter was not. Not only were Auburn's prisoners beaten and forced to run gauntlets of angry COs with batons after their surrender, but 120 of these men were then rounded up and taken to Auburn's special housing unit, or segregation area, where they would wait indefinitely to learn their fate for having participated in the November uprising. Eventually, six of those men faced criminal indictments. Word that the Auburn protesters had surrendered peacefully 
but had still been beaten, placed in segregation, and charged with crimes quickly spread throughout the prisoner grapevine. This history of broken pledges and unresolved disciplinary hearings is what awaited Russell Oswald when he began his new job as Commissioner of Corrections. As he put it to Rockefeller, regretfully, it seems that this entire period has been spent working on the problems at the correctional facilities of Auburn. As Oswald also pointed out worriedly to his boss, Auburn's prisoners being held in segregation had managed to get the attention of some lawyers who, in turn, were now initiating an action against the DOCS in federal court, claiming that the prisoners were being beaten by correction officers and county deputies, with tree trunks, etc. In addition to filing a lawsuit against the DOCS, alleging guard brutality, organizations including the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and the New York City ACLU, as well as a number of individual lawyers had banded together and obtained a federal order instructing the Auburn administration to show cause as to why it was holding 120 men in segregated housing indefinitely. Two of these attorneys, Louis Steele and Herman Schwartz, were already representing prisoners who had been charged just months earlier with instigating riots in New York City's jails and wanted to be sure that men from Auburn were not going to face similarly serious charges without representation. Nor were they going to let prison officials keep more than a hundred other men locked up in segregation forever. These two lawyers would later play important roles at Attica. Thanks to the myriad legal efforts of men such as Steele and Schwartz, Auburn's brass was forced to release most of the 120 men in segregation back into the general population. These administrators were incensed. As lawyer Herman Schwartz pointed out, this was one of the first times that the prison had lost a disciplinary matter. It also set Oswald on edge. Not only did he realize that he was up against a determined group of prisoner advocates in his prison system, but he was also dealing with substantial pressure from their allies in the court of public opinion. When an assemblyman from Buffalo, Arthur O. Eve, took an impromptu tour of Auburn's segregated special housing unit and declared that those still being held there, six men the DOCS had decided were the real leaders of the rebellion, were not just receiving inhumane treatment, but were actually fearful for their lives, a media storm ensued. Sensing that the situation at Auburn was fast becoming a public relations disaster, Commissioner Oswald assured Governor Rockefeller that he would go to the prison personally to see if things were as bad as Assemblyman Eve had claimed. He would meet with staff, with prisoners in the general population, and with any prisoner remaining in segregation who was willing to talk. Before embarking on this visit, however, Oswald sent a letter to the six still confined to segregation, pledging penal improvements, but only if they gave up their deliberately contrived harassment tactics. Oswald's hostile reception when he visited Auburn that March seriously tested his earlier view that New York's prisoners had legitimate grievances. Oswald was used to the incarcerated seeing him as the good guy, the one who would help them when others wouldn't. Here at Auburn, however, it was clear that many prisoners despised him, and it took him completely aback. In their view, Oswald had had the power to stop Auburn administrators from harming them once they had surrendered, and also could have kept them from so many months in segregation. 
but he had done nothing. Rather than try to explain himself to these men, or try to repair his relationship with them, the commissioner instead dismissed them as part of the lunatic fringe. As Oswald reported to Rockefeller, the so-called Auburn Six, those indicted for their part in the riot, impressed me as being emotionally sick individuals. They yelled and screamed during our discussion, called me a racist pig, and much less complimentary things, threw water at me and cussed out all the correctional personnel. Oswald's personally wounding visit to Auburn had left him increasingly sympathetic to Rockefeller's long-held belief that prisoners had become unreasonably militant. The commissioner still remained hopeful that some of his planned reforms would ultimately break down the offender's negative attitude toward institutional personnel. Making sure that Auburn's men were allowed to take daily showers, for example, could be a real breakthrough in his view. But Oswald's worry that the new prison revolutionaries now posed the greatest threat to the stability of the correction system was beginning to consume him. Oswald wrote to Republican Assemblyman Frank Walkley in May 1971 to explain his concern. Recent court decisions in favor of offenders, greater leniency on the part of the courts, and an increase in the militancy of the offenders, which goes along with the militant and aggressive attitude of many individuals in our society, has without a doubt brought about increased disrespect. Prisoners' use of the courts particularly irked him. He hated, for example, that attorney Louis Steele from the National Lawyers Guild was continuing to tell reporters that guards still felt free to abuse the prisoners. Oswald also resented, as he put it, the daily legal harassment that continues from the American Civil Liberties Union staff and other legal aid groups. He also felt deluged by the huge volume of mail he was receiving from ordinary citizens regarding problems in New York's prisons. In his view, he had done his very best to ensure that procedures regarding use of force, use of gas, visitation by justices and judges, mailed visitation privileges in common law relationships, disturbance control plans and programs, were clarified and adhered to religiously. And yet, as he reported to Rockefeller, a hardcore group of prisoners seemed bent on disrupting their facility and failed to respond to all conventional methods of treatment. And to his astonishment, those in segregation at Auburn continued to demonstrate in their cells, smashed everything they can, throw food and excrement and obscenities. Other state officials largely disagreed with Oswald and Rockefeller that the actions of a handful of revolutionary troublemakers could explain the tension and violence in jails and prisons across New York. On May 26, 1971, a special legislative committee comprised of three Republican and two Democratic assemblymen toured Auburn and talked directly to prisoners there to get a sense of what was going on. They subsequently issued a five-page report on prison conditions that confirmed, among other things, that there had been a great deal of prisoner harassment at this facility, as well as evidence of injury. Still, the head of DOCS clung to the idea that certain troublemakers behind bars and their lawyers on the outside were causing the most serious problems. By the summer of 1971, Oswald had so fully adopted the militant troublemaker analysis of the problems at Auburn and other prisons in his system 
that he decided the only way to restore peace in a given facility was to remove the problem prisoners. So he closed Auburn's special housing unit and transferred all the militant troublemakers who were still awaiting court dates. The so-called Auburn Six were sent to Attica. Once they were moved, he ordered that these men stay in segregated housing until they give evidence of being amenable in other parts of the institution. In the wake of the transfer of men out of Auburn, Oswald felt that a weight had been lifted off his shoulders. Refreshed and recommitted to his initial reform agenda, the commissioner wrote to Rockefeller, We must convince all that we do not countenance disinterest in prisoners or brutalizing of any kind by anyone, and that we will make opportunities for rehabilitation available. Most important, he went on, by showing that we care, the image of correction would start changing for the better. But the Attica Correctional Facility, already severely overcrowded and now home to the Auburn Six, had seen no positive change. Still facing harsh conditions, capricious rules, and racial discrimination, Attica's men were more frustrated than ever. 4. Knowledge is power. In the summer of 1971, Attica's prisoners weren't just frustrated. They were, as prison officials like Oswald worried, becoming much more politically aware. Not only had these men been developing a powerful critique of poor prison conditions, but they also had begun to discuss how they might reform their institution, what they might do concretely to get the state to treat them as human beings who were serving their time, not as monsters deserving of abuse and neglect. One key reform that the incarcerated had already managed to secure in this period was in the area of education. Although they were not granted eligibility for Pell Grants until 1972, by the late 1960s, prisoners were taking a variety of courses in penal facilities across the country. By 1970, Attica had hired quite a few teachers, including several reading instructors, one who taught math, and a few who offered courses in history and sociology. Officially hired to help men get their high school equivalency, these instructors were instrumental in inspiring Attica's incarcerated to see the world both within and outside of Attica's walls as inexorably linked. During one English course offered at Attica in the summer of 1971, Two outspoken streetwise thinkers, Kenny Malloy and Tommy Hicks, were particularly vocal about their feelings about race, economics, politics, and crime and justice. Both were members of the Black Panther Party and had participated in Auburn's November 1970 Black Solidarity Day uprising. But as politically savvy as these two students were, Hicks could quote black poets, writers, and historical black figures and speak Swahili fluently and Spanish well enough to be understood, they were by no means the only men at Attica who were articulating potent critiques of the injustice. As one of Attica's men put it, there were many prisoners there who were determined to get as much education as they could with the goal of bettering their lot and their family's lot. Sociology classes were particularly popular with Attica's men in the summer of 1971. In one weekly class, a racially mixed group of 15 prisoners read authors ranging from Adam Smith to Marx and Mao. 
Each week, these men challenged one another to think about how these texts might apply to their own experiences. Several of the students in this class could share practical experiences that helped them to think about how marginalized people might empower themselves. Two students in the class, Samuel Melville and Herbert Blyden, had both been in the tombs in New York City when it had erupted the summer before. Both had a lot to say about the importance of taking action if one really wanted to change things for the better. Sam Melville, born Sam Grossman before he chose the literary moniker, looked more like an absent-minded professor than the mad bomber the media had dubbed him. Melville had landed at Attica after having been sentenced to 18 years for setting explosives in government buildings in protest against the war in Vietnam. As he saw it, the war would never end until the United States experienced firsthand the destruction it wrought abroad. Being incarcerated at Attica, where officials, in Melville's view, also acted brutally and with impunity, only solidified this Brooklyn-born white radical's conviction that society had to be overhauled by any means necessary. Herb Blyden was also persuaded that the United States needed to undergo some major changes. Blyden had been born on the island of St. Thomas, but in his 33 years, this broad-shouldered and tall black man had had more than his share of run-ins with the police in New York City. For Blyden, it was crucial to read as much as one could about everything, from American colonialism and imperialism to how the legal system operated. Blyden had been one of the most outspoken men during the Tombs Jail Rebellion, and the aftermath of that uprising had shown him firsthand how prisoners who took on the state needed as much information as they could get about how the law might eventually be used against them. The presence of these men offered Attica's otherwise apolitical men, like Big Blacksmith, a new understanding of their discontents and a new language for articulating them. But contrary to what state officials such as Russell Oswald thought, adding experienced activists like Blyden, Melville, Malloy, and Hicks to the general population at Attica is not what riled up the prisoners. No one had to be persuaded that things at Attica were bad or needed remedy. The men at Attica were well aware of how brutal America's prisons could be, particularly if those incarcerated remained silent and state officials were allowed to do anything they liked with no public scrutiny. The fate of the Auburn rebels transferred to Attica had been most instructive in that regard. Although Oswald's decision to close Auburn's dreaded special housing unit convinced many outsiders that he was committed to penal reform, those on the inside knew that the alleged leaders of the rebellion had been sent straight to another segregation unit, HBZ, when they arrived at Attica. Auburn transferee Jomo Joka Omowale later described their reception. The guards were big and they said they would try to kill us. We were scared. Notably, because the Auburn transferees had educated themselves about the law, they didn't stay in HBZ forever. These men knew that the state had no legal grounds to hold them in this place indefinitely, and, thanks to the round-the-clock efforts of their advocates, including Louis Steele, Herman Schwartz, and a young lawyer named Elizabeth Fisher, they were, after six months, released into Attica's general population. Central to that victory was the decision of federal district judge John T. Curtin, 
a man who would be asked to rule on prison officials' actions at Attica many more times over the coming year. The prisoners well knew that any legal activism on their part infuriated Attica's superintendent, Vincent Mancusi. They had already butted heads with him in the metal shop strike, and it was clear that he was determined to fight the Auburn transferee's release from HBZ with everything he had. Whereas Mancusi feared the Auburn prisoners would set about brainwashing the entire prison population and turn everyone into a radical troublemaker, it was in fact how DOCS officials had treated these Auburn transferees that ended up further radicalizing many men at Attica. Not only had they been beaten, but they had also been subjected to the harrowing experience of the box for six whole months after they had been promised no reprisals. That the word of prison officials meant nothing increasingly angered and agitated most of the men locked up at Attica. Even while they misunderstood its origin, by the summer of 1971, prison officials were well aware that they were sitting on a powder keg. As Commissioner Russell Oswald noted, that summer, the focus of our anxieties moved from Auburn to Attica. Five. Playing by the rules. Although Judge John T. Curtin forced administrators to let the Auburn transferees out of HBZ, prisoner frustration remained high. Few among them believed that prison administrators had been chastened into treating them with greater dignity or humanity, and one group of prisoners decided that it was now time to articulate a specific list of all that needed to happen at their facility to address this most important issue. On June 16, 1971, a surprise cell search turned up a draft of demands, one that greatly alarmed Attica Superintendent Mancusi and the COs who had confiscated it. Two weeks later, Commissioner Oswald received the same set of demands in a letter signed by a group of five men calling themselves the Attica Liberation Faction. There actually wasn't much of an Attica Liberation Faction to speak of, but, as one prisoner later explained, when the manifesto was written up, there was obviously a need for a name on behalf of all inmates, even though as far as a strict organization, there was no such thing. The letter unnerved Oswald, especially since it was also cc'd to the governor. But it was not the vitriolic attack the commissioner might have expected from an entity calling itself a liberation faction. Dear Sir, enclosed is a copy of our manifesto of demands. We find it is necessary to forward you said copy in order for you to be aware of our needs and the need for prison reform. We hope that your department don't cause us any hardships in the future because we are informing you of prison conditions. We are doing this in a democratic manner, and we do hope that you will aid us. If Oswald was relieved that the letter's opening was neither threatening nor abusive, he was still greatly unsettled by the passion of its attached manifesto. We, the inmates of Attica Prison, that document began, have come to recognize that because of our posture as prisoners and branded characters as alleged criminals, the administration and prison employees no longer consider or respect us as human beings, but rather as domesticated animals selected to do their bidding and slave labor and furnished as a personal whipping dog for their sadistic psychopathic hate. 
The manifesto went on to list 28 demands for reform, including changes in the parole system, religious freedom for Muslims, improvement in the working and living conditions, and a change in medical staff and medical policy and procedure. The five men writing as the Attica Liberation Faction, Herbert Blyden, Frank Lott, Donald Noble, Peter Butler, and Carl Jones-L, closed by reminding Oswald that they were playing by the rules. These demands are being presented to you. There is no strike of any kind to protest these demands. We are trying to do this in a democratic fashion. Oswald reacted with a mix of caution, suspicion, and conciliation. Caution first. Now that the alleged representatives of inmates at Attica Correctional Facility have submitted a long list of demands, he wrote to Rockefeller, concern over lodging the Auburn Six at Attica becomes magnified. Would it just call more unwanted attention to their case to move them to a nearby county jail to await their day in court on the charges they faced from the November uprising, he wondered? Or would it be worse to keep them in the general population at Attica, where they could further agitate the other prisoners? Then suspicion. The more times he read the manifesto, the more cynical Oswald became about its provenance. Oswald was sure that he had seen a treatise just like this not too long ago, and it hadn't come from a New York prison, but from California. After investigating, he reported to Rockefeller, We have since discovered that these demands are almost entirely copied from demands issued at Folsom Prison in California, as developed by Black Panther leadership there some time ago. The commissioner found it particularly interesting that Attica's July Manifesto, as it was now being called by the prisoners, had demanded religious freedom. In his view, this was a dead giveaway that radicals were stirring up trouble in this prison from as far away as California, and worse, that the black Muslims were involved. He found it equally disturbing that one of the signers of the manifesto was Herbert Blyden, who he knew had been a key participant in the New York City Jail Rebellion of 1970. It was true that these five Attica prisoners had modeled their call for prison reform on a manifesto that had been drafted by men in California's Folsom State Prison. The dramatic prisoner protest at Folsom the year before had been a big news item, and copies of those inmates' grievances could be found in countless cells across the country. But that did not negate the legitimacy of the cry for reform coming out of Attica, nor was Blyden's involvement indicative of any incipient rebellion. Blyden could see clearly that conditions at Attica were just as dreadful as at the tombs, and he simply felt it necessary to speak out. Prison officials at Attica itself expended little effort trying to understand the real reasons Attica's July Manifesto read so similarly to Folsom's. Having grasped instead at sinister explanations for the penning of this document, administrators decided that the best response to it was to clamp down even harder on the prison population. Things became so grim at Attica in the wake of the July Manifesto that, as prisoner Sam Melville reported in a long handwritten letter to his lawyer, men were now ending up in segregation, getting a 60-day box bit, simply for having the manifesto. But while Superintendent Mancusi opted to punish those who were sympathetic to the July Manifesto, over in Albany, Oswald had decided on a strategy of conciliation. To Rockefeller, he explained that he intended to investigate all demands 
with a view toward responsive action where possible and beneficial. Oswald had spent his life as a prison reformer, and it was still important to him that the prisoners at Attica feel that he had their best interests at heart. This, he believed, might be their only hope in trying to thwart the designs of outside agitators. On July 7, 1971, Oswald replied to the authors of Attica's July Manifesto and assured them that he would give careful consideration to the entire list. He also reminded them of their stated intention to proceed in a democratic fashion, adding pointedly, I applaud this as a rational approach. Suspecting that his letter would be read in every cell block, Oswald also informed the men that he had already been hard at work to address penal problems. You may have noted that some change has already come about, and I assure you that greater change toward a more progressive, humane, and rehabilitative system is in the planning state. On July 19, Oswald received a response, this time penned solely by Frank Lott, expressing appreciation for the dialogue that had now begun, as well as the Attica prisoner population's faith in the commissioner's sincerity. He added, though, that with the exception of management having placed water pitchers on the lunch tables for the first time, the conditions listed in the last two pages of our manifesto still exist. And then he went on to enumerate those. A month went by. Hearing nothing from the commissioner after this moment of good faith back and forth made Attica's self-appointed spokesman nervous. On August 16, 1971, Lott wrote again on behalf of the men calling themselves the Attica Liberation Faction, this time to bring the commissioner's attention to the fact that Superintendent Mancusi was still censoring the newspapers that prisoners read, even though the courts had recently ruled that such censorship was not legal, and also to impress upon Commissioner Oswald how desperate the men were to see signs of change. We are anxiously awaiting your evaluation of our manifesto, he wrote. I do hope that you will drop me a few lines and let me know what is happening. Still, Lott did not want the commissioner to feel threatened. Despite the fact that conditions had grown even more oppressive for the men in Attica since they first contacted the commissioner, with the escalation of cell searches, the confiscation of writing and reading materials, and the increase in disciplinary lockups, Lott promised Oswald, we will continue to strive for prison reform in a democratic manner. This time Oswald replied to Lott. He reiterated that much was already being accomplished in the area of prison reform and again assured him that he would continue to study improvements that needed to be made. But Attica's prisoners needed to be realistic, he chided. Complete change cannot be brought about in just a short time. They knew that. But they also knew that the sorts of things they were asking for such simple changes as providing clean trays from which to eat in the mess hall, or allowing more than one shower a week during the hot summer months, did not require complete change. 6. Back and forth By mid-August 1971, as the temperatures hovered around 90 degrees in the day and never dipped below 68 at night, a sense of futility and frustration hung in the stale air of Attica's five sweltering cell blocks. The optimism that the men had allowed themselves to feel only a month earlier, when there was a belief that the commissioner of the Department of Correctional Services might do something for them, 
now seemed naive. The stench of nearly 2,300 sweaty men hovering like a poisonous cloud over the cell blocks could persuade even the most patient prisoner that Oswald had played them. There was, however, at least one very tangible and ultimately significant product of the prisoners having put on paper the concrete things they needed to humanize Attica. For the first time in this institution's history, the desire for change had prompted usually antagonistic prisoner factions to talk with one another. And soon a number of shaky, but nevertheless potentially powerful alliances had been forged across ethnic, racial, and political lines. The CO staff saw this happening and it worried them. As one correction officer noted anxiously, the particular makeup of these groups changed. A group would have three or four of the different factions involved, which, you know, wasn't normal. That an unusual unity had developed between various prisoner groups became particularly obvious the morning of August 22, 1971. As Attica's various companies were marched in their neat lines to the mess hall in silence, the COs immediately noticed that most of the prisoners were wearing a strip of black cloth as an armband. As notably, rather than lining up behind the two tallest men, as was customary, each company followed two stony-faced black prisoners of varying height. Then, even more unnerving to the officers, no one ate a thing once they sat down in the mess hall. As the COs looked across that cavernous room for some clue as to what was going on, a prisoner finally explained to one of them that the men were staging a spiritual sit-in to protest the murder the previous day of a fellow prisoner, George Jackson, out in California's San Quentin State Prison. George Jackson had become famous in prison systems across the United States for his extensive writings from the inside. Expositions on just how racist and brutal America's penal institutions were, particularly for prisoners of color. His killing touched a nerve among the incarcerated everywhere. The story put out by prison officials in California was that Jackson had been trying to escape and had pulled a 9mm automatic pistol about 5 inches long out of a wig that he snatched off his head when a guard reached to examine it. He then ran across the yard and was shot. To Attica's prisoners, this story rang false, even absurd. How in the world could the most closely monitored man in the entire California prison system have had a wig on in the first place, let alone hidden a heavy, bulky gun in it? As one of Attica's prisoners put it, there was simply no way that anybody hid it in their hair, then got back to the box without being searched. Prisoners everywhere were convinced that whatever had happened at San Quentin must have involved trigger-happy guards, and now George Jackson was dead. Former Auburn, now Attica prisoner, Jomo Joka Omowale, was particularly dismayed to learn of Jackson's death because he had recently been corresponding with Jackson about the prison life in New York. Jomo was alarmed that CO aggression, itself quite common, could lead to the outright murder of such a famous prisoner. As another prisoner put it, the men at Attica had always generally been aware that in the past, guards could get away with killing inmates. But nobody ever really expected it to happen now, until it happened to Jackson. That so many prisoners, black, white, and Puerto Rican, 
stood together on August 22, 1971, and refused to eat, indicated that Jackson's death had not only shaken them, but had rallied them as well. Riding the wave of this new unity, the men in A Block decided then to engage in a mass sicken on August 30. Specifically, they hoped to call attention to the dire state of the prison's medical facilities that day, because it was rumored that Commissioner Oswald would be making a visit to Attica. As it turned out, the commissioner canceled his visit, so he never saw the crowd of protesting prisoners crammed into Attica's antiquated infirmary. But he did hear about their action, and sent word to Governor Rockefeller and Superintendent Mancusi that he would visit Attica the very next week. He was worried. As he explained it to Rockefeller, while it is not characteristic of me to cry wolf, the recent tragedy at San Quentin has made it all too apparent that anything can happen when dealing with the kinds of idealists and fanatics housed in our facilities. By August's end, Attica's correction officers had also grown increasingly concerned. They began expressing to their wives and co-workers a reluctance to go to work. Some had even started leaving their wallets at home in case anything jumped off at the prison. CEO William Quinn also felt compelled to make sure that his financial affairs were in good order. One night, after putting his daughters, Deanne and Christine, to bed, Quinn showed his wife, Nancy, where all the insurance papers were and how to deal with the household bills. He worried that an explosion at Attica was inevitable and perhaps even imminent. Like Commissioner Russell Oswald, many of the COs at Attica blamed the new level of tension they were experiencing on the courts, feeling in particular that Judge Curtin had weakened their authority when he ordered the release of the Auburn detainees into Attica's general population. Most also believed, however, that the DOCS had made the situation worse. Officials in Albany had left them too understaffed and undertrained to meet the challenges posed by the angry and newly empowered prisoners. Oswald agreed to discuss the issue of guard security in his upcoming visit. Although the commissioner and the officers feared that prisoners might be planning an insurrection, they were not. While prisoners remained deeply skeptical that state officials could be counted on to help them, Oswald's willingness to correspond with the Attica Liberation Faction had been encouraging. As one prisoner summed it up, in the summer of 1971, many men genuinely felt that Oswald might do something positive for them, and even the more cynical were at least willing to wait and see. 7. End of the Line In some ways, the men at Attica couldn't believe that the head of the entire New York State Department of Correctional Services was coming to talk with them. They hoped that the recent rebellions at Auburn and in New York City jails had taught officials like Oswald a lesson, that prisoners would never stop demanding to be treated as human beings. They wanted him to see the wisdom of really listening to prisoners rather than ignoring their needs. As inspiring as it was to read the broader critiques of injustice found in George Jackson's Soledad Brother, the prison letters of George Jackson, Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice, or in Mao's Little Red Book, which Attica's prisoners read and discussed passionately, they also prayed that having Oswald's ear might net them needed changes now. All waited with great anticipation for September 2, 
the day when the commissioner was to arrive. Once there, he was to meet with staff, meet with representatives from the Attica Liberation Faction, and then speak to all of the other prisoners in the facility via the prison address system. That evening, men sat in their cells and placed headphones over their ears, the ones they usually listened to static-filled radio songs on, waiting to hear what Oswald would say. Word had it that he had met, face-to-face, -face, with some reps from the Attica Liberation Faction earlier that day, which was a good sign. But everyone really wanted to hear what reforms would be coming to Attica from the commissioner himself. First, the men in A, B, and C blocks were to hear Oswald speak through their headphones from 7 o'clock to 7.09, and then from 9.18 to 9.27, he would speak to the men in E block. Finally, from 9.44 to 9.53, the commissioner would once again take to the microphone and talk with the metal shop's prisoners in D block. Instead of talking with the prisoners in person, though, Oswald had left them a taped message. The recording began with the commissioner explaining why he was not addressing them live as he had said he would. I had originally planned to spend two days here, he intoned, but unfortunately, an emergent situation in the office, plus the fact that my wife had been taken to the hospital, dictates my early return to Albany. As a low rumble of disbelief began to spread through the cell blocks, Oswald's voice played on. He told the prisoners that he had already taken key steps to bring reforms to Attica, and that he had done this despite facing the worst fiscal crisis in remembered state history. As important, he continued, the DOCS was planning to implement several new programs and projects, such as adding a law library and a new program for training in meaningful rehabilitative methods for all personnel, as well as extending our programming into the community. Not until the tail end of his message did Oswald address any of the issues that the men had raised in the letter sent to him back in July. Oswald said only that he and his staff are reviewing, and will continue to review, the numerous aspects of each single item, and that his office would make changes that were reasonably possible. As Oswald's message ended, a few of Attica's men were still able to muster some measure of optimism about the possibilities of reform. One 21-year-old even felt compelled the next week to write to the commissioner that he had listened intently to the recorded speech and believed that there was sincerity in his words. He went on, I have a strong faith in you, sir, for you want to give us back our pride and self-respect in as many ways as you can find and I know that eventually you will succeed. Another man also wrote to Oswald, expressing not only gratitude for his efforts, but also hope for his wife's speedy recovery. However, most of Attica's men felt betrayed by Oswald. Although he was not there to hear it, no sooner did his taped speech end than the sound of earphones hitting the wall and men shouting, That's a cop-out! That's a cop-out! began echoing through Attica's cell blocks. He also never saw those men who could only sit despondently with their heads in their hands in the wake of his recorded message, nor those who found themselves pacing their cells in despair. In the words of one man, he didn't do nothing. He didn't so much as make one concession, such as giving a man soap or giving a man an extra shower. Over the coming days, Attica's prisoners engaged in intense debates about what the commissioner's taped response signified and what they might do next to get him to act. To most, 
it seemed clear that their foray into the democratic process and their patience, as well as pledge of nonviolence, had produced not a single improvement in their living conditions. If anything, it had resulted in more censorship, more cell shakedowns, fewer minutes outside the dismal blocks, and an administration even more suspicious and watchful of their every move. As Sam Melville wrote to his lawyers on September 4, all rules are now strictly enforced. Attire, haircuts, lining up, not talking, no wearing hats, everything. And yet, even those prisoners who had some experience with direct action, including some veterans of Auburn and the New York City jail riots, still very much hoped that something so dramatic might be avoided at Attica. On September 8, 1971, Herb Blyden wrote one more letter, this time to John Dunn, a Republican state senator who had been involved in negotiating a peaceful end to the uprising at the tombs in New York City, where Blyden had been, and who also chaired the Standing Committee on Crime and Correction in Albany. In some ways, Blyden saw Dunn as their last hope. We need more visits from your committee on the immediate future, as the situation at prisons is rather fluid. Blyden wrote. All we received were promises of change. I thank you in advance. Respectfully, Herbert X. Blyden. Others expressed the need for immediate outside intervention far more desperately and passionately. As Sam Melville put it in a frantic letter to his lawyer, for Christ's sake, do something. Part 2 Power and Politics Unleashed Michael Smith Michael Smith couldn't quite figure out how he had wound up working as a correction officer. The 22-year-old wore sideburns, had a mustache, and looked a bit more like a scruffy college student than an employee of the New York Department of Correctional Services. But like so many other small-town boys who had grown up in rural New York, Mike needed to make a living and prisons were the going industry in that part of the state. Shortly after graduating from high school, Mike had enrolled in Genesee County Community College. There, he met a girl named Sharon and was so smitten that he decided to leave school and get a job so that he could ask Sharon to marry him. Soon after they got engaged, Mike took a position in a local machine shop. It didn't take long, though, before he began to think that he needed a better job. It dawned on him that he could take the civil service exam and start working for the prison system like several of his cousins. The pay was stable, the benefits were fine, the job was secure, and these were the things that mattered. Since what Mike wanted most was to be able to provide for a family. On September 3, 1970, two weeks after his wedding, Mike started his first guard job at the Eastern Correctional Facility in Napanock, New York. Another young CO, John D'Arcangelo, offered to show him the ropes, for which Mike was grateful. He had been given no other training for the job. Mike and Sharon soon became close to John and his wife, Anne, a bond made closer because both women were expecting babies. When Mike then transferred to Attica in order to be near his extended family, he hoped John would also transfer there. To his delight, within a few months, John joined him. Mike thought that he could be happy at Attica. Archaic as it was, it was more modern than Nabinock, 
and seemed more secure. Also, he thought he might actually have a knack for prison work. As far as he was concerned, it was all about mutual respect. Whereas most of his fellow guards called prisoners by their number or maybe by their last name, Mike addressed every prisoner as Mr. To be sure, this irritated several of his colleagues, who saw him as too soft and easygoing. To Mike, though, there were many decent men in prison who had simply made bad choices or had some tough luck. He had been quite touched when two Napanock prisoners wrote him a letter thanking him for the way he had treated them. Mike was so proud of this letter that he held on to it. Mike had not been at Attica long, however, before he became troubled by the way the other COs treated the prisoners, and this weighed on him. It bothered Mike that every time a Puerto Rican prisoner got a letter, his fellow guards threw it into the trash simply because they couldn't read it. The practice of strip-searching every new prisoner also struck Mike as unnecessary and demoralizing. He was fairly certain that he would have considered suicide had he been forced to undergo this ritual. So Mike Smith was not surprised that dissent was on the rise at Attica. When he was placed in charge of one of Attica's metal shops, it became clear to him that the prisoners there had legitimate gripes and that they were growing more determined to voice them. He believed that it was important for prisoners to be allowed to speak up. One day in July 1971, Mike was approached by Don Noble and two other prisoners at the end of their shift. They wanted his opinion on a letter they had drafted to the Commissioner of Corrections. This was the letter that they had signed as the Attica Liberation Faction. After reading it carefully, Mike thought they had expressed their concerns clearly and rationally and told them he thought that writing it was the right thing to do. When the letter only elicited a taped message from Oswald, Mike was nearly as dismayed as the prisoners. He was also worried. Mike had been walking through one of Attica's cell blocks when Oswald's tape had been broadcast, and he could tell immediately that the administration's decision to handle things this way was disastrous. Mike could feel the air around him begin to crackle with a new fury. Eight. Talking back. While the men at Attica hoped that powerful people such as State Senator John Dunn still might do something on their behalf, there was little consensus regarding what to do if this effort also failed to bring some meaningful improvements to their facility. The disparate political factions in the yard had been talking about this very question for some time now. Activists like Sam Melville from the Weather Underground, a revolutionary organization committed to fighting racism and imperialism, Black Panthers like Tommy Hicks, Black Muslims like Richard X. Clark, and men like Mariano Delu Gonzalez from the Young Lords Party, a grassroots activist organization working in cities like New York and Chicago to improve conditions for Puerto Ricans. Still, no new strategy had been agreed upon. By early September 1971, however, and after Oswald's taped message, all of them could agree on one crucial point. Most men at Attica were now at a breaking point. Just about anything might cause this place to explode. Correction Officer Mike Smith believed this as well, although he had a good relationship with the men in his company, as he walked them to mess on the morning after the debacle of Oswald's taped speech, he could see that they were unusually on edge, 
and he disliked the idea of so many prisoners all together in one room with tensions so high. Nothing happened that day. But a week later, on September 8, 1971, an incident confirmed his worst fears about how strained things had become at Attica. At about 3.30 that afternoon, Mike Smith was assigned to A-Yard, where almost 500 men from the A-Block companies were on their rec break. In one corner of the yard, near the handball court, Mike noticed two men sparring with each other. To Mike, it seemed obvious that they were just playing, so he felt no need to intervene. Another CO came to a different conclusion, however, and went to get his superior, 61-year-old Senior Lieutenant Richard Maroney. One of the men disappeared into the yard before he could be brought over to Maroney, leaving only the other, Leroy Dewar, to explain what had been happening. Dewar was a slightly built 23-year-old from New York City, serving a five-year sentence. He had just been released from his cell after seven days of keep lock for disobeying an officer's order. After all the long hours of being cooped up in his tiny cell, he had really been enjoying the release of horsing around out in the open air. When Dewar reached Maroney, he tried to explain what he had been doing, but the lieutenant insisted that he leave a yard immediately and return to his dreaded cell. Incredulous, Dewar asked, what for? Maroney replied, I said, get inside. A 10-year veteran of Attica, Maroney was used to being obeyed. Dewar countered, I asked you for what? Why? I haven't done anything. Maroney repeated, I said, get in there. Furious, Dewar turned his back on Maroney and started to walk away. Then Maroney reached out to grab him. In a shocking move, Dewar spun around and hit Maroney in the middle of his chest. Again, the lieutenant repeated his order, and again Dewar hit Maroney before running out into the middle of the yard with Maroney hard on his heels. As this highly unusual scene played out, a crowd of almost 200 gathered around. Some of Dewar's supporters began threatening Maroney with assault if he took Dewar anywhere. In response, Maroney tried to assure the crowd that Dewar would not be harmed. He just needed to leave the yard. By the summer of 1971, however, CO's promises meant virtually nothing to the men at Attica, and many were certain that Dewar would suffer a serious beating the moment he was out of their sight. All of a sudden, another prisoner, a white 28-year-old named Ray Lamori, who had been playing football in another section of the yard, burst into the circle that had formed around Dewar and Maroney. Later, no one could agree whether Lamori tried to hit Maroney or was just calling him names. But at that moment, another Attica officer, 49-year-old Lieutenant Robert Curtis, looked out of A-Block Corridor and saw what he felt was an escalating confrontation between prisoners and guards and immediately moved in to try to cool things down. Curtis entered A-Yard and told Maroney and the other COs to walk away. They would deal with Dewar and Lamori later. When Lieutenants Maroney and Curtis walked out of A-Yard without Dewar in tow, it was hard to say who was more surprised, they or the prisoners who looked on warily as they departed. Curtis returned to his post at Times Square, a very small, dark room enclosed by massive steel gates at the very center of the prison the command center where the halls to A, B, 
C and D blocks all converged, and where a tiny stairway led up to Attica's catwalks. Although Curtis had decided to walk away from the altercation in A-yard, he felt it vital to report what had just happened to Superintendent Mancusi and Mancusi's deputy superintendent, Leon Vincent. Curtis finally located both Mancusi and Vincent in the parole hearing room of the administration building, located nearest to A-Block, where they, along with Assistant Deputy Superintendent Carl File, were in a tense meeting with the Attica Guards Union, Council 82 AFS-CME. This meeting had been going on since 10 o'clock a.m., and, as it happened, the issue that had kept all parties there for so long was none other than officer safety. Union Rep. Captain Frank Pappy Wald argued that prison administrators were not taking the employees' concerns seriously. It was the second time in two days that Attica's union had confronted prison management with an urgent request to do something to guarantee safety on the job. The previous day, COs had met with Mancusi and were so concerned about safety that they had asked that the prison be placed on total lockdown to avert a possible crisis. Nothing seemed to get through to management. Even now, as Curtis reported what had just transpired in A-Yard, Mancusi just stared impassively. In his view, the fact that some prisoners had acted up earlier that day just meant that they needed to be punished. He instructed Curtis to wait until the men in Dewar's and Lamori's companies had been locked up for the night, and then to take the two offenders to HBZ. This was most men at Attica's worst fear, and all of the men in the A-block companies were especially worried about what might happen to Dewar or Lamori once they were placed in segregation. For starters, no man had ever hit an Attica lieutenant, and the punishment for such an act was sure to be harsh. Even worse, however, both Dewar and Lamori had come to Attica from Auburn, because both had been in the rebellion there the previous November. Everyone knew that this, too, would make them a target of Attica guards, still furious that their Auburn counterparts had been taken hostage in that uprising. That night, when the men of A-Block's three company heard Maroney and three other COs heading to Dewar's cell, all grew silent and wary. Dewar stalled at first, asking for time to gather his books to give to another prisoner. When the guards refused, Dewar announced that he wouldn't go and the men came in after him, tearing up the cell. Those in the cells nearby could hear the sounds of furniture breaking and glass shattering, and began banging on their bars while yelling, Leave that kid alone! None of them could actually see what was happening inside Dewar's cell, so they imagined the worst. When they saw Dewar being carried out motionless, one guard holding each of his extremities, the other prisoners thought he was dead. Stunned silence reigned after Dewar was taken away. It was like a member of the family had just died, recalled one prisoner. Everyone was now very frightened. Then, mere minutes later, the sound of another confrontation could be heard coming from the floor below, where Ray Lamori's group, A-Block's Five Company, was locked down for the night. Even though Lieutenant Curtis was not sure what Lamori's offense was, he and four other COs had dutifully followed Mancusi's instructions and had ventured over to cell 24 to take this man to HBZ. Terrified after having just heard the commotion that accompanied the removal of Dewar, 
Lamori had already picked up a stool to defend himself. However, he soon saw the futility of this act, and even though he found it unbelievable that Curtis could not tell him exactly why he was being disciplined, Lamori went peaceably with the officers. Because Five Company was a so-called grading company, and the men on it were relegated to doing the absolute worst kind of scut work at the prison, they had their own lengthy list of established grievances against Attica's guards, and the removal of Lamori and Dewar was like a match to kindling. As the COs walked Lamori out of the gallery, men flung various objects at them from their cells while screaming obscenities. One of them, William Ortiz, curled a soup can and managed to strike an officer, which landed him on keep lock until he could be taken before the adjustment committee the next day. Word that Ortiz, too, was now being disciplined only escalated the men's outcries, so Lieutenant Curtis sent the other officers with Lamori to HBZ, while he himself stayed for a while to make sure things did not get any more out of control. Feeling the situation still most unstable, Curtis called for backup. Soon, eight more officers were walking the gallery that night. Curtis had reason for concern. The 40 men in five company were some of Attica's angriest prisoners, and they were also some of the most vocal of them. The group included Sam Melville, the white radical who had bombed buildings in protest of the Vietnam War and had written the treaties on how badly Attica's prisoners were being exploited in the laundry. Also in this company was Tommy Hicks, the Black Panther, an Auburn transferee, who had been one of the leaders of the rebellion there, and L.D. Barkley, another young member of the Panthers, who was not only very well-read, but also most outspoken about his politics. Eventually, though, A Block did grow quiet. Lieutenant Curtis decided to head back to the room where Attica's upper-level administrators were still meeting with the Union. Breaking into their meeting yet again, Curtis told Mancusi that he felt that inmate unrest had reached a point of crisis. Given that this pronouncement didn't even prompt his boss to adjourn the meeting, Curtis was not at all sure that he had conveyed the true volatility of the situation. Taking a different tack, Curtis decided to ask if his superiors might at least allow the late shift to stay over into the next morning in case there was trouble. He also requested permission to bring in the next day's 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. shift three hours earlier. That way, he reasoned, the period of the day when COs would be most at risk, the breakfast hour, when every company was going back and forth from their cells to the mess hall, would be well covered. Deputy Superintendent Leon Vincent responded curtly, Who in the hell is going to pay the overtime? Giving up, Curtis left the room. As he walked away, he decided that he would keep at least the current shift over for an hour, while the hall captains made their usual late-night rounds, and deal with the overtime consequences later. That night, the lights were extinguished in Attica's cell blocks without further incident, but Curtis couldn't relax. He knew that many of the prisoners in A Block believed that Leroy Dewar was dead, and he was aware that no amount of reassurance would convince them otherwise. Worse, he knew that the uproar that had accompanied the removal of both Dewar and Lamori had traveled through the radiators and ventilators throughout every one of A-Block's galleries. And indeed, it had. Before the clock struck midnight on September 8, the rumor that they beat up both guys, 
and that Dewar might be in a coma or dead, had circulated through the prison. As dawn broke, prisoners and COs alike greeted the new day with dread. 9. Burning Down the House At 7 o'clock a.m. on September 9, 1971, Attica's lights came on, rousing all of the men in A Block from their fitful slumber. Throughout the night, speculation had raged regarding Leroy Dewar's fate. Many couldn't sleep, fearing that COs might again descend upon their galleries. The silence was deafening as the men lined up by their cell doors, waiting for the hall captain to disengage the master lock so they could step out for the routine head count before breakfast. When the doors did unlock, a number of the men just stood there, afraid to exit their cells or to leave the block. But eventually they did, and as they walked to the mess hall, peering nervously from side to side, each seemed to sense that just a sigh, a cry, or maybe a spark, anything, could send the place up in flames. The correction officers felt the same way. As COs Richard Lewis and William Quinn prepared to leave home for their 7 o'clock a.m. shift, neither of them wanted to alarm their families, but both were deeply apprehensive. After patting his Great Dane and Doberman Pincher on their heads and waving goodbye to his 12-year-old daughter Patty and 14-year-old son David, CO Lewis, who wished that he could call in sick, headed to work. Quinn was also reluctant to leave that day. After checking in on his still-sleeping daughters, Deanne and Christine, he slipped out the door and hoped for the best. When Quinn and Lewis arrived at the prison, they joined other jumpy day shift officers getting ready for a briefing from Lieutenant Robert Curtis, who clearly had not had much rest. Curtis tried his best to apprise them of everything that had happened in A-Yard and A-Block over the past 36 hours, and then he told his men he would make sure to place an extra officer in the mess hall for the 7.15 breakfast sitting, just in case anything went down. He wished them luck as they filed out the door. Officer Gordon Kelsey had been assigned to take five company to the mess hall that morning, which worried him since he had no experience with this company, and he knew that the events of the previous evening would have left their mark. When it was time to lift the lever that released the locks on the cells, Kelsey made sure to keep William Ortiz's cell bolted, since he had been informed that this man was to stay there, under keep lock, for having struck an officer the night before. While Kelsey was trying to get the other men to leave the gallery, many of them demanded to know exactly what would happen to Ortiz in their absence. Other than the fact that Ortiz was slated to meet with the Adjustment Committee, Kelsey knew nothing about what prison officials had in mind, but his perceived evasiveness only agitated the men in his charge. Abruptly, several declared that they weren't leaving the gallery unless Ortiz was with them, and they headed back to their cells. Unruffled, Kelsey proceeded with the remaining men out to A-Block Corridor. Unbeknownst to Kelsey, however, as these men passed by the central lockbox, one of them managed to throw the switch that was keeping Ortiz locked in. When his door slid open, Ortiz, along with the men who had hung back in solidarity with him, rushed to join the larger group heading to the mess hall. The hall captain of five company raced to the phone to report this security violation. 
It was relayed to Lieutenant Curtis, who was in the administration building, finally writing up his report on the Dewar Lamori incident. Superintendent Mancusi sent Curtis to A Block to investigate. He confirmed that the gallery was empty and that all the men, including Ortiz, had gone to breakfast. When Curtis returned to the administration building, Mancusi was gone. Curtis asked Mancusi's assistant deputy superintendent, Carl File, what he should do. File ordered that Ortiz be returned to Keeplock and all of Five Company returned to their cells after breakfast. None of them would get rec time in A Yard today. Though he was fearful of what this might set off, Curtis dutifully telephoned William Quinn, who was manning Times Square. He told Quinn to lock the A gate to Times Square as soon as Five Company passed through on the way back from the mess. Quinn knew immediately that something must be wrong, since it was standard practice to leave all the gates surrounding Times Square open during high-traffic times, such as meals. Meanwhile, at breakfast, the men of Five Company were oblivious to all of this. With Ortiz eating alongside them, it looked as if all had been forgiven and, for the first time since leaving the cell block, they relaxed just a bit. The men remained in a fairly good mood as Kelsey led them in a neat double line from the mess hall through C Tunnel to Times Square and then out into A Tunnel, where they assumed they would exit into A Yard. Right behind Five Company was Two Company, another grading company, and behind it was Nine Company. The men in all these companies were lined up peacefully, waiting to be let out for their rec time. None of them, including C.O. Kelsey, knew that the door leading from A Tunnel out into A Yard had been locked ahead of their arrival. No one had bothered to inform C.O. Kelsey of the change to regular procedures. The prisoners looked on, puzzled, as Kelsey, equally mystified, tried the door. Finally, he gave up and, leaving the men in line, headed toward the gate at the far end of the tunnel from Times Square that led into A Block. Halfway there, he met Lieutenant Curtis, who was heading into the tunnel to inform Five Company that they were being taken back to their cells. Just as Curtis came abreast of the first four prisoners in line, the men closest to the A-yard door realized that they had been locked into A-tunnel on purpose. They panicked. Coming toward them in A-tunnel was the man they believed had played the central role in the beatings of Dewar and Lamori the night before, and within seconds, the five-company line began to break down as the men at the front began backing away from Curtis, unsure what he might do. Suddenly, one of them decided to fight rather than flee, landing a blow to Curtis's left temple. Several others then jumped him. While these men were hitting Curtis, the rest of the men in the five-company formation and those in the two companies behind it stared on in confusion and terror. As Curtis later described it, I looked over my left shoulder and the men were standing there with a dumbfounded look on their faces. The back end of the company, I would say probably 40 men, still stood in a column of twos in perfect formation. All of a sudden, it seemed to dawn on them, too, that they were little more than sitting ducks locked in the tight confines of this ill-lit tunnel. As prisoner Richard X. Clark put it, we expected the goon squad any minute. Sheer chaos ensued as men began grabbing anything they could find to protect themselves. In this melee, some of the men broke off trying to hide, 
Others, however, saw this bedlam as an opportunity for revenge on officers whom they particularly hated, or on fellow prisoners against whom they had grudges. Still others wanted to head for the commissary and loot it for food, or go to the prison pharmacy to score drugs. Within mere minutes, a tunnel had disintegrated into a blur of flying fists, breaking windows, and screaming men. William Quinn, who was safe behind locked gates in the Times Square Command Center, was one of a number of COs who were witness to this pandemonium. Others watched what was happening from where they stood, waiting their turn to enter Times Square to head to B, C, and D tunnels with their companies after morning mess. All were unnerved, but most felt that whatever was happening in A tunnel could be contained. Meanwhile, more than 100 A-block prisoners who had been on the earlier breakfast shift were already in A-yard having their rec time. When they heard the shouting and glass smashing in A-tunnel, they crowded around the windows of the tunnel to see what was going on. Word spread like wildfire through A-yard that a riot was underway. These men began arming themselves with anything they could find, rakes, boards, football helmets, and other pieces of sports equipment. The two COs watching over the A-yard group, John Darkangelo and Walter Zymowski, felt their knees go weak as a group of prisoners approached them and snatched their rings of keys. These officers watched helplessly as the group went over to the door to A-tunnel and, after struggling a bit to open the lock, flooded into the already cramped space to join in the fracas. In Times Square, the guards on the outside of the command center could see that William Quinn was growing more nervous. As he began double-checking to make sure that all the gates were still secure, he looked up and saw his friend Gordon Kelsey with blood streaming down his face. Taking an enormous risk, Quinn opened the gate a crack to let Kelsey in to safety. He then did the same for CO Don Melvin, who was waiting in sea tunnel with the men he was bringing back from breakfast. The prisoners in Sea Tunnel still hadn't quite figured out that a full-scale riot had engulfed A Tunnel, but Quinn feared that once they did, Melvin would become a target. Seeing that Quinn had opened the gates for the two guards, a number of terrified prisoners from Nine Company begged to be let into Times Square so that they would be safe. One beseeched, let me in, I didn't have nothing to do with it. But Quinn was too afraid to chance opening Times Square one more time. He told the men in Nine Company to stand quietly alongside the wall and urged them not to get involved in any of this craziness. Then he picked up the phone and frantically tried to reach the administration building. The phone didn't work. Attica's telephone system was so archaic that only one party at a time could make a call. And the lines were now overloaded with people trying to reach the administration building to find out what the commotion was near Times Square. With no way of communicating with anyone, Quinn had little choice but simply to wait for help. He had no idea what he was supposed to do in a riot situation. There were no plans, no procedures, as the correction officers had been complaining to management all summer. As one guard put it, while the superintendent took our request under advisement in each instance, nothing was really done as far as I could see. In a tunnel, most of the prisoners originally under Kelsey's command were desperately trying to get out of the claustrophobic space that was growing more dangerous by the minute. If they could not somehow open a gate, they would be trapped 
and thus an easy target for the scores of police officers and guards they imagined had by now assembled in the administration building. Driven by both fear and fury, a large group descended upon the massive gate at Times Square, and several men began shoving various keys they had taken from the A-yard guards into its lock. They tried key after key, as Quinn, Kelsey, and Melvin watched in terror. But none of the keys worked, and for a brief period it appeared that the COs would be safe. But the A-block prisoners were desperate. Giving up on the keys, they began trying to force the gate open. Working furiously at its hinges, they called out to the still-stunned men watching from Sea Tunnel, urging them to try to open their gate to Times Square. None of those men made any move to follow suit. Nevertheless, the gate separating A-Tunnel from Times Square A-Gate began to groan. Someone had handed the men a long piece of pipe that appeared to have been ripped from the backboard of A-Yard's basketball net. Thanks to the force of dozens of men behind this makeshift battering ram, the massive gate between A-Tunnel and Times Square suddenly gave way. One of the bars that secured the gate to the cement, which had long needed replacing, broke in half about 15 inches down from the ceiling. Apparently, this bar had broken before, been improperly rewelded, and then painted over so many times that its weakness had become invisible. At 9.05 a.m., as the massive gate separating A Tunnel from Times Square finally gave way, scores of prisoners flooded that tiny space and demanded William Quinn surrender his keys and nightstick. No sooner had Quinn handed them over, however, than he was hit on the head with tremendous force by someone wielding what was later described as either a two-by-four or a heavy stick. Quinn fell to the ground, where others set upon him and trampled him as men continued to pour into Times Square. Soon this young CO was lying motionless, with blood streaming down his head and face. Within minutes, both Gordon Kelsey and Don Melvin were also knocked to the floor, where they too were kicked and beaten. All three COs were soon covered in blood, fading in and out of consciousness. Meanwhile, the scores of men who now crowded into the nerve center of Attica began trying to use Quinn's keys to open the gates to the rest of Attica's cell block tunnels. In no time, they had access to all four tunnels and cell blocks as well as to the set of stairs leading from Times Square to the catwalks above. From this height, they could evaluate what was happening in all four courtyards of the prison at once. As important, the roof of Times Square was where the officers kept several gas guns, as well as tear gas grenades, and they soon had commandeered these as well. Ten minutes after the collapse of A-block gate at Times Square, the prison alarm whistle finally sounded. Until that point, most of the 116 correction officers and 78 civilian employees who were on shift at Attica had no clue that all hell had broken loose at the very epicenter of the prison. Each time a group of prisoners burst into another area of the prison, they caught the officers there completely unprepared. Anyone in a white CO shirt or blue shirt worn by civilian employees was fair game for retaliation from prisoners deeply angry at the abuses they felt they had too long endured at Attica. Standing guard in the metal shop, Mike Smith heard the prison whistle, but he had no idea what it meant. 
All he had ever been told was that an alarm would sound if a prisoner escaped. Heading to the windows that looked down to the first floor of the shop, the garage area, which was under the supervision of C.O. Eugene, G.B. Smith, he saw that something was seriously wrong. Prisoners were running around and arming themselves. Mike Smith hurriedly decided to lock the civilians in the metal shop office to protect them, and watched as the now terrified prisoner workers in his shop began trying to squeeze themselves into lockers or hide under tables. Mike ran to the phone in the office, but it was dead. As he frantically dialed, trying to reach someone in authority, Mike could hear men breaking through the steel doors at the bottom of the stairs. He heard them climbing the stairs, then beating on the doors leading to his part of the shop. Mike could only stand still, his keys in one hand and his nightstick in the other, praying that the doors would hold. To his shock, a prisoner inside the shop suddenly came out of hiding, took Mike's keys, and opened the door. Scores of men rushed in, knocked him down, and set upon him with a pipe. As Mike lay there trying to protect his head, two other prisoners who had been hiding, July Manifesto author Don Noble and another man, threw their bodies over him, telling the men to leave him alone because he was a good guy. Correction officer Donald Almeter, who was also in the metal shop that day, didn't fare so well. 23-year-old Almeter had a reputation as a tough guy, and prisoners gladly gave him a beating. They looked like Watutsis coming in. Almeter later recounted, I got hit so hard and spun around, I thought I was an A-yard. The prisoners then broke into the metal shop office and dragged the civilian employees down the stairs and out of the shop. Mike Smith was still in the shop with prisoner Don Noble and the other man who had protected him. These men now fretted about what to do with the CO. They considered hiding Smith in the paint shop, but feared what would happen to him if he were discovered later on. So they escorted him out of the metal shop as their prisoner, hoping to get him through A Block and out to the administration building, where he would be safe. Although many of Attica's COs experienced violence and wrath as the prison fell, Mike Smith was by no means the only guard to be protected by prisoners. G.B. Smith, the guard in the downstairs part of the metal shop, had watched in terror as the 80 men in his charge began to arm themselves. He asked one of them why he had grabbed a metal pipe. The man replied, That is for my protection, Mr. Smith. I am not planning on using it on you. Another group of men from outside the shop smashed through the steel door by driving an electric forklift through it. It appeared that the workers in G.B. Smith's shop were abandoning him when they stepped aside, though he later reflected that stepping aside was exactly what I would have done. The intruders forced G.B. Smith to strip, but one of the men who worked for him grabbed the CO away from them and escorted him out the door, shouting at any prisoner who came near that this was his motherfucking hostage. When they were almost to Times Square, this man said quietly, Don't worry, Mr. Smith. I'm going to try to get you to the yard as easy as possible. In B Yard, correction officer Dean Wright had a similar experience. Soon after it became clear to him that a full-scale riot was underway, he and Mike Smith's friend John D'Arcangelo barricaded themselves in the yard toilet, piling pillows, cushions, and other items that were stored in there up against the door. After several hours of hearing nothing but smashing glass and screaming and, at times, 
utter silence. The two were discovered by prisoners who threatened to burn them out if they did not open the door. They surrendered to this ragged group of men wearing football helmets and wielding baseball bats. They were subsequently stripped, roughed up, and forced out into D-Yard. But as Wright recalled, one guy then ran over, grabbed him, told the others to leave him alone, and said to him, You were always fair with me, and I'm going to try to see that you don't get hurt. While Dean Wright, John Darkangelo, Mike Smith, G.B. Smith, and Don Almeter were being taken hostage, back in Times Square, William Quinn still lay motionless on the floor. Don Melvin and Gordon Kelsey were coming too, and two other officers whom prisoners had beaten, Paul Rosecrans and Alton Tolbert, were huddled on the floor. When prisoner Richard X. Clark happened upon this scene, he could see that Quinn was in bad shape. The four other guards weren't doing well either. He knew he had to do something to get them help. Clark was 25 years old and had been sent to Attica after his addiction to drugs led him to stealing and a conviction for robbery and petty larceny. Clark had acquired his drug habit while serving in the Navy. He had managed to contain it for a while, even receiving an honorable discharge in 1968 and returning home to his wife, Celeste, and their one-year-old twin sons. But he soon became addicted again. Being in prison had been a wake-up call for Clark. He'd become a devout Muslim, and by 1971 had risen to a leadership position within Attica's black Muslim community. As a leader, he felt compelled to do whatever it took to secure the safety of the five men who lay injured in Times Square. Within an hour, Clark and several of his men had taken COs Kelsey, Melvin, Rosecrans, and Tolbert through A Tunnel to A Block, and for their own protection, had locked them in two cells where Eight Company was usually housed. When he returned to A Tunnel, Clark came upon another battered guard, CO Royal Morgan, nicknamed Tree Trunk, and a prisoner, who were trying to carry CO William Quinn somewhere safer. Although Morgan himself seemed to be in shock and had on nothing but his shoes and socks. It was obvious that Morgan's hand had been badly shattered and that he was having a hard time carrying Quinn's unconscious body. So Clark called some other prisoners over to assist. They moved Quinn into an office on the ground floor of A Block and then locked up Morgan on the second floor gallery of A Block with the other guards from Times Square so that he would be spared further assault. Returning to Quinn, Clark realized that this CO was in urgent need of medical attention. He was, as Clark recalled, still unconscious, flat on his back. He was bleeding from the nose and mouth. He also had a bad head injury. With great trepidation, Clark walked to the gate that separated A Block from the administration building. Facing nervous officers with shotguns behind a second gate a mere 15 feet away, he called out, there's a hurt guard in here. Can you send in a doctor? Their first response was cold stares. Damn, Clark thought, here is one of their own men, and they won't even come to help him. Finally, someone shouted that he should bring Quinn to them. Shaking his head in disbelief, Clark went back into A Block and recruited five of his fellow black Muslims to help him lift Quinn's limp body onto a mattress and carry him down one flight of stairs to the gate. Along the way, one of the men known as Brother Sharif slipped on some blood, 
and fell with such force that he chipped his tooth. The others somehow managed to keep Quinn upright, and they placed him carefully on the floor so that the guards behind the second gate could see him. Still, no one came for Quinn. Thinking that prison officials might rescue Quinn if he left the area, Clark walked up the stairway to A Block. From there, he watched as someone finally came to take the severely injured CO away. As soon as they shut the gate behind them, Clark yelled out to the officers on the other side of the gate that there were other guards upstairs who also needed medical attention. In addition to the COs he had secured on 8 Company, Clark had come upon Robert Curtis and two other COs, Elmer Hune and Raymond Bogart, hiding in a cell. It was clear that Bogart needed medical care. Clark told all of the men in the 8 Company cells that he was going to try to get them out. As CO Gordon Kelsey remembered, he said he was going to try, but he didn't know whether they were going to make it or not. In fact, by 10 o'clock a.m., Clark had managed to get Kelsey, Tolbert, Rosecrans, Morgan, Melvin, and another guard, Carl Murray, down to the first floor, where other COs got them out of the prison and to safety. By that afternoon, prisoners had managed to get four more officers out of the prison, Raymond Bogart, James Clute, Richard Delaney, and Ken Jennings. Some of them were well enough to go home. Others needed to go to the hospital. No CO was as seriously injured as William Quinn. Not only had he been badly beaten by prisoners, but prison administrators had left Quinn alone on a mattress, on the ground by the front door, with no prison doctors or nurses anywhere in sight. When ambulance driver Richard O. Merle finally arrived at Attica to pick up Quinn, he couldn't believe his eyes. He was shocked by how bad Quinn's injuries were. If he hadn't known Quinn his whole life, he wouldn't have recognized him. Outside Attica's walls, William Quinn's wife, Nancy, had been hearing the relentless shrieking of the prison's whistle from 9.15 until 10.30 that morning and had no idea what was happening over there. It wasn't until many hours later that Nancy was notified that her husband was injured and had been taken to St. Jerome's Hospital in nearby Batavia. When she finally saw him, she was horrified by the bruising and swelling all over his arms and large bandages over his hands. Doctors told her that he had two open skull fractures and would need to be transferred to Northside, a larger, better-equipped hospital in Rochester, almost an hour away. Nancy could barely process what she was seeing and hearing. Even much later that night, Nancy Quinn still had no idea what had happened over at Attica to cause the injuries to her husband. 10. Reeling and Reacting No one in the town of Attica, not the family members of Attica employees, nor even the COs who usually worked there, had any idea why police cars were racing to the prison as the siren there blared on the morning of September 9, 1971. Lieutenant Richard Maroney, the Attica CO who had been struck by prisoner Leroy Dewar the day before, had been in his house when Attica's whistle began to sound, and, though he wasn't that surprised that things had blown up the next day, it bothered him that he had no idea what had happened to cause someone to sound the alarm. 
No one called, and no one he tried to reach seemed to have a clue what was going on. Correction officer John Darkangelo's wife, Anne, also had no idea why the prison whistle kept sounding. But the longer it did, the more frightened she became. She tried to remember what John had told her about that whistle. From what she could recall, it was only sounded when a prisoner had escaped. Since Anne was home alone with their three-month-old daughter, this thought was itself terrifying. She eventually gleaned that a riot had erupted, but that was all she knew. No one had called her to let her know if her husband was all right. Finally, many hours later, she learned that he was one of the COs taken hostage, but that was it. She had no idea what might happen next. Prisoners' family members who were waiting in the visitor's area to see their loved ones the morning of September 9th also had no clue why all hell seemed to be breaking loose just past the room they were in. Eventually, they realized that a riot was underway inside when they saw Attica's clerical staff running out the front gate in a panic. The visiting family members also left the building, but they did so sick with fear for their loved ones still inside. Over the next few hours, the parking lot around the prison filled with the cars of family members of prisoners and prison employees alike, all desperate to know what was happening. But Superintendent Mancusi was loath to release any information to anyone regarding why his prison was in complete chaos. Not only had he been reluctant to sound the whistle, even once he realized that things truly had gotten out of hand, but he also did not want officials from DOCS or local enforcement to get involved. Mancusi wanted to handle this crisis himself and regain control of Attica with his own men. To that end, he began calling his off-duty officers back to work. Still, Mancusi knew that he had to at least apprise his bosses in Albany of what had happened at his facility. At 9.15 that morning, he managed to reach DOCS Deputy Commissioner Walter Dunbar, who, in turn, alerted Commissioner Russell Oswald. Deeply alarmed, Dunbar told Oswald that he believed they both should leave immediately for Attica. At around 1 o'clock p.m., the two boarded a twin-engine Beechcraft King Air in Albany. Wim Van Ekren, another Deputy Commissioner of Corrections, was told to make sure that all other state prisons were kept under tight watch. The National Guard was alerted. Governor Rockefeller's office was also contacted, but the governor himself was at a meeting of the Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board in Washington, D.C. Oswald spoke instead with the governor's first assistant counsel, Howard Shapiro, who communicated with Rockefeller's personal attorney, Michael Whiteman, who in turn relayed this intelligence to Rockefeller's close advisor, Robert Douglas. Whiteman also alerted Rockefeller's personal secretary, Ann Whitman. It was time for her to interrupt his meeting to tell the governor what was going on. While various officials were being briefed about the quickly deteriorating situation, and around the same time that William Quinn was being taken to the hospital, Mancusi's off-duty COs began arriving at Attica. They armed themselves with guns from the prison arsenal as well as baseball bats and axes from a shed behind the prison. Eager to get inside to help their fellow officers, these men made some forays into Attica's chaotic cell blocks, but quickly retreated when it became clear that the prisoners were in full control. Mancusi eventually advised his men to stand down and await backup from the New York State Police, 
whom his deputy superintendent, Leon Vincent, had contacted despite Mancusi's reservations. A mere 15 minutes after hearing from Vincent, Major John Monahan of the NYSP's Troop A in Batavia contacted his division headquarters to let his superiors know that he was readying a battalion of men to go to the prison. Governor Rockefeller's attorney, Michael Whiteman, was alarmed to learn this. There seemed to be no clear plan for re-establishing order at the prison, and yet the NYSP was already on the scene, eager to go in. Major John Monahan, a formidable-looking man with silvery hair and a long, bulbous nose, was indeed determined to retake the prison as soon as possible. Word had reached him that E-Block was on fire with people still inside. Wasting no time, he ordered one of his lieutenants into that area of the prison with fire apparatus, a detail of 30 men, and a 15-man backup. The battalion managed to put out the flames in E-Block, which had already been abandoned by all but two sick inmates. The NYSP men were able to secure the area, so at least one section of the prison was now back under DOCS control. Retaking the other cell blocks was another matter entirely. This mission was undertaken initially, at Mancusi's behest, by two contingents of correction officers, armed with tear gas canisters, as well as weapons ranging from rifles to 38 caliber revolvers, and even a Thompson submachine gun. Normally, it was forbidden for guards to carry a gun when confronting prisoners, since guards might lose their weapons to the prisoners, but normal rules no longer applied. One contingent of COs was later joined by about 100 state troopers, and by noon, this group had swept through and eventually managed to regain control of B Mess Hall as well as A and C Blocks. C Block was an easy recapture because scores of men there had chosen the safety of their cells over the chaos of the corridors. With more than half of the prison secure by mid-morning, COs and troopers alike assumed they were going to retake the rest of it. Major Monahan, however, said no. Even though extra troopers and COs had already arrived, he considered their numbers insufficient. Helping Monahan think through the next steps was Troop A's Captain Henry Hank Williams, who had also arrived at Attica. Williams, a large man who sported a severe buzz cut and kept his eyes hidden behind dark glasses, had been a trooper since the age of 21, and he now oversaw an eight-county region of the Bureau of Criminal Investigation of the NYSP in western New York. Both he and Major Monahan spent most of that morning making sure that NYSP Brass was apprised of all that was happening at the prison. George Infanti, lieutenant colonel of the NYSP's Bureau of Criminal Investigation, was one of these high-ranking officials who wanted to be kept in the loop, and he too would soon be on the scene. By noon on the 9th, 100 men from Troop A had shown up in front of Attica, as had 100 men from Troops E and D. Word had it that Troop C was nearby, staging another 50 men. There was nothing for these men to do, so they paced and fretted. No one seemed to know what should happen next. As prison officials looked from the windows or roofs of A or C block, they could see that rebelling prisoners were getting themselves organized, mostly all moving into D yard. They could also see that these men had taken guards and civilians hostage. 
but how many or where they were was unknown. 11. Order out of chaos. To the relief of the 1,281 prisoners who found themselves suddenly in charge of their own facility, and to the horror of prison officials and the police who had been watching their actions from the outside, by the afternoon of September 9, Attica's D-yard had become the scene of a highly organized and remarkably calm protest. Whereas the early morning hours had been filled with the sounds of men screaming and windows being smashed, a few hours later, the incarcerated at Attica were bringing some remarkable order to what had been utter chaos. Prisoner Carlos Roche very much liked the freedom of movement that the morning's upheaval had netted him, but he also found the lack of structure worrisome. Roche was part of 48 Company in D-Block, and like the 39 other men in his company, including his friend Frank Big Black Smith, he was assigned to work in the laundry. The morning of September 9, he was at his job when he realized that the metal shop just above the laundry was on fire. The phone was ringing behind him. Superintendent Mancusi's wife was, at this moment, calling down to the laundry to order clean sheets for the warden's mansion. But all Roche could focus on was the smell of smoke, the sound of men yelling, and then, once he'd stepped out into the corridor, the utter chaos. When a forklift driven by a prisoner came barreling down the corridor, he finally understood. A riot was in progress. Not knowing where to go, Rocher took off for D-Yard, since that seemed to be where everyone else was running. On his way, he saw a 75-year-old prisoner known as Old Man Perry leaning over a drum of prison-made wine, passing out big cups to men who were grabbing cartons of cigarettes and rolling big boxes of juice out of the commissary. Rocher was more than ready to join the party, but he couldn't shake his wariness. This couldn't last, and it felt dangerous that no one seemed to be in charge. Rocher was right to be concerned. While some prisoners, like old man Perry, were living it up in a relatively harmless way, others were engaging in much more vicious activities. Two prisoners, the 19-year-old twins John and James Schley, who had landed at Attica on parole violations, experienced this firsthand. In the bedlam of that morning, John had gotten separated from James and then watched, horrified, as he saw someone walking his brother toward the bathroom. John ran to his brother's rescue, but before he knew it, another man was holding a knife on him and ushering him into the same bathroom. He was surrounded by a group of five or six men who repeatedly raped him. Meanwhile, John could hear and see his brother up against a wall, some guy behind him also being attacked. Others who found themselves wandering Attica's corridors unsupervised were actually more dangerous to themselves than to others. One prisoner who tried to go into a bathroom near Times Square came upon a whole bunch of guys in there all shooting up. They'd taken advantage of their initial moments of freedom to raid the prison hospital for drugs. Roger Champin, a well-respected jailhouse lawyer from D-Block, stood dumbfounded by the free-for-all he was witnessing around him in the early hours of September 9. When Champ, as his friends called him, walked into D-Yard, it was pandemonium. 
There were cigarettes from the commissary and food scattered everywhere. Overwhelmed, Champ realized that order had to be established soon, or else this situation was going to escalate into something scary. But the men running around the prison on the morning of September 9 seemed to know that they should stick together in one place, and by midday had come to D-Yard. Still, Champ worried about having so many men in one open space with no one in charge. There were racial as well as political divisions, and it was unclear to Champ how everyone would behave in this unprecedented situation. The racial divisions particularly worried Champ, because he could clearly see from the looks on the faces of the whites, and from the way they had set themselves apart from the rest of the men, that they feared that a racial conflict might be brewing. To his mind, this would be an utter disaster. Of the nearly 1,300 men still loose in the prison who decided to congregate in D-Yard, nearly two-thirds were African-American, about a quarter were white, and almost 10% were Puerto Rican. Some were affiliated with organizations such as the Black Panther Party or the Young Lords Party, while others were not at all political and wanted largely to be left alone. Champ hoped that someone would step in soon to ease tensions and encourage prisoner unity. Champ wasn't the only prisoner out in D-Yard who recognized that he needed to do something to prevent clashes and bring some calm in D-Yard. Richard X. Clark and his fellow black Muslims took the initiative. They first worked to make sure that the hostages, who had been blindfolded and gathered in one area of D-Yard, were protected from further assault. They formed two circles around them, inner and outer, then linked arms and faced outward to ward off any possible attack from other prisoners. The way they saw it, without healthy hostages, the prisoners would have nothing to bargain with nothing to dissuade the authorities from retaking the prison by deadly force. Although some of the COs who'd been taken hostage were fairly well-liked by the prisoners, including Mike Smith and John Stockholm, others, like Lieutenant Robert Curtis, were not. According to one of his fellow officers, Curtis was, in fact, one of the most unpopular officers in the prison. He was famous for his 14-day keep locks. Attica's black Muslims not only succeeded in preventing any revenge attacks against the unpopular COs, who were now being contained in what was being called the hostage circle, but they also tried to make them as comfortable as they could be under the circumstances. They gave clothing to all of the hostages who'd been stripped. CO hostage G.B. Smith asked one of the men if he would tie his arms in front rather than behind to alleviate the terrible pain in his shoulders and to his great relief, he did as asked. Gary Walker, an unpopular CO who'd been grabbed out of the metal shop, stripped, and made to run through a gauntlet of prisoners, found himself grateful when the security team surrounded him. As the Muslims protectively encircled the hostages, Champ impetuously grabbed a bullhorn he had seen lying near Times Square, jumped up on a table, and issued an appeal for unity. While Champ spoke to his fellow prisoners of the need to stand by one another across political and racial lines, a hush fell over D-Yard. Everyone was clearly listening to his plea to eliminate fights among ourselves and focus our hostility outside. Champ was in a good position to make this pitch because he was well known to many of the men at Attica as a fair man 
someone who had been holding free classes in the yard concerning law and politics since 1968. He had a way of speaking that was authoritative without being threatening, and his overall message, that they should work together, seemed sensible. As Champ spoke, several other men made their way to the table. Leading the way was L.D. Barkley, whom Champ had earlier asked for help. He was joined by Herbert X. Blyden, Don Noble, and Frank Lott. Blyden's Auburn experience had taught him something about how to negotiate with prison authorities, and Noble and Lott, two authors of the original July Manifesto, had great credibility as well. Shortly thereafter, white radical Sam Melville also made his way to the table, as did Muslim Richard X. Clark, Black Panther Tommy Hicks, and Young Lords leader Mariano DeLue Gonzalez. Together, these men formed a committee that would help bring order to the yard. The addition of DeLue to this group was an important sign that all of Attica's men would be included in what happened next. His job was to make sure that discussions held at the table would be translated for Attica's Spanish-speaking prisoners. In time, Champ's bullhorn was being used not just to spread calm and unity, but also to get practical things accomplished in D-Yard. A prisoner skilled in electrical work managed to set up a speaker system, and everyone was soon listening as instructions were issued to immediately cease all drug-taking, sexual acts, and hoarding of food and cigarettes. They were told to bring any and all weapons, crowbars, iron pipes, knives, and put them under the table where the speakers stood. Delu translated every directive into Spanish. L.D. Barclay, although the youngest man at the table, quickly became one of the most mighty speakers in the yard. Thanks to him, tensions were eased between various political factions because he insisted that his own group, the Black Panthers, work cooperatively, even with other organizations they might not like, because, as he put it, everybody was in this thing together. Although there was remarkable goodwill among the men in the yard, the committee up at the table suspected they might still need a security detail. A call for volunteers netted about 50 men. Blyden and Clark went out into the yard to actively recruit more security guards, aiming for a mix of blacks, whites, and Puerto Ricans. Targeting some of the most respected and largest men in the group, they recruited a dedicated group, including Frank Big Black Smith. Because of his size and strength, because he was one of the best players on the D-Block football team, and because everyone knew he had no political allegiances that would lead him to favor some prisoners over others, Big Black was chosen to head up the security force. His friend Carlos Roche begged him not to do it, fearing the price he would pay when the takeover inevitably ended. But Big Black agreed to accept the position. Along with Herbie Scott Dean, also known as Akil Aljundi, Another well-liked man who routinely refereed the basketball and football games, he took charge of almost 300 fellow prisoner security guards. They made sure that food was evenly distributed, that personal violence was kept in check, and that anyone who threatened another prisoner was removed from the yard. Specific security guards were also given particular tasks in the yard. A prisoner by the name of Bernard Strobel, known by all as Shango, was assigned to guard the entrance to D-Block, while former Auburn prisoner Jomo Joko Omowale, known simply as Jomo, 
was put in charge of guarding the entrance to Times Square. Though the task of keeping everyone safe seemed monumental, Big Black was determined to ensure that anyone in the yard could feel like they could be in the yard without any bodily harm coming to him. The Schley brothers were especially glad to see men with security armbands roaming around and keeping watch over things. When Richard X. Clark heard about the attack on them, he and Champ organized a security team to take the brothers on a flashlit search that night to find their rapists. Although the young men were unable to identify their attackers, they nevertheless were grateful for the support. Another urgent problem facing the men in D-Yard was finding some way to deal with prisoner and hostage injuries, as well as chronic maladies such as diabetes and asthma. Blyden called for anyone in the yard with medical experience to come forward. Once again, volunteers headed up to the table in the corner of D-Yard and began offering their services. Some went to the prison hospital to bring out bandages, and others negotiated with personnel on the outside to obtain additional supplies. One man, 47-year-old Tiny Swift, became the chief prisoner administering medical care. By day's end, he and his fellow volunteers had set up a fully functioning medical station, designated by a makeshift cross and a large white sheet draped over the area. Painkillers were dispensed to the injured, and medications like insulin were given to those who needed them. As the afternoon wore on, moves were made to house people by setting up tents using cell block sheets and also to make sure that everyone got fed. The men who had assumed leadership asked a group of prisoners to go to the commissary to get its remaining supplies and then directed that all the swiped foodstuffs and other goods the men had grabbed be deposited in a community kitty. After some discussion about how most efficiently to feed nearly 1,300 people, they decided that men would be called up to eat by cell block and then served each meal by designated volunteers. Canned goods like Spam were among the offerings, as were sandwiches and coffee. Once basic needs were attended to, the men at the table began discussing how a more democratic decision-making body might be formed. Eventually, it was agreed that an election should be held, one in which the members of each cell block would elect two men to vote on all important decisions. Addressing the men in the yard, they asked for everyone to group together by cell block to decide which man would then talk for the group. This wasn't a speedy process, but D-Yard was being transformed from anarchy into an organized tent city with democratically elected representatives, a security force, a dining area, and a fairly well-equipped medical station. In many cases, it was the most politically engaged and outspoken prisoners who were elected. A-Block chose black Muslim leader Richard X. Clark and black panther L.D. Barkley. B-Block's men selected former New York City jail activist Herbert X. Blyden to represent them. C-Block elected a man named Jerry the Jew Rosenberg, who was highly respected for his legal knowledge, as well as Flip Crowley, who was very good at articulating a position. Champ was one of the leaders elected out of D-Block. In addition to the officially elected leaders, others were eager to participate, including Sam Melville, Frank Lott, and Tommy Hicks. These men gathered around the table to be available in case anyone wanted their assistance on matters of strategy and organization. 
Once it was decided who would represent the nearly 1,300 men now gathered in D-Yard, the bullhorn was up for grabs, and everyone who wanted to speak could line up to voice their opinions and concerns. Free speech had come to Attica. As Richard X. Clark later recalled, a lot of rhetoric was spoken at that time, and the speeches were pointed and powerful. Most focused on the many things that needed to be changed at Attica. With so many important issues being raised, it was soon clear to the leadership that they needed to draft an official statement of demands to present to prison officials. Although they had not planned this prison uprising, the men who found themselves in the middle of it wanted to make sure that they used the opportunity to make their grievances known. A call for typists went out over the bullhorn, and after an hour-long cacophony of shouts, impassioned pleas, and indignant outbursts, two white and two black prisoners had tapped out a list of the major things the men in the yard wanted to accomplish. Votes were taken in order to reach consensus on each point, and the leaders worked hard to help the group prioritize their demands and distinguish between issues that were urgent and those that could be dealt with later. The leadership committee also compiled a list of people they hoped would come to Attica to serve as witnesses to their uprising. They were eager to receive individuals, as Clark explained, who they felt would help them get the word out about conditions inside the prison and hold the prison officials accountable. We wanted these individuals to come in as observers, to keep an eye on us, and keep an eye on the Department of Correction. 12. What's going on? It was clear to anyone watching Superintendent Vincent Mancusi pace his office on the morning of September 9, 1971, that he was furious. Mancusi could not believe the position he'd been put in. Here he was, 57 years old with a college degree from the State University of New York at New Paltz and a high position within the state bureaucracy. And he had to go hat in hand to a bunch of thugs to ask them what in the hell they wanted. Although he thought this was outrageous, it was unavoidable. Mancusi believed that he had done all he could do to protect his staff. He had, for example, sent all of the female staff home by 10 o'clock that morning, but now he had to figure out how to wrest his prison back from the men inside. The only way forward was to find out what the prisoners wanted and let them know, in no uncertain terms, that they had better surrender immediately. At 11.30 on the first morning of the rebellion, as the prisoners were getting themselves organized, Mancusi grabbed a bullhorn and headed down to the gate leading to A-Tunnel, the tunnel closest to the administration building. He shouted that someone needed to come and tell him what was going on. Eventually, four or five prisoners appeared in the dark recesses of the tunnel. Mancusi was unnerved to see that they had football helmets on, towels around their head so that they were not recognizable, and everybody was talking at once, hollering. Shut up and talk one at a time, he barked at them, as though they were ill-behaved children. They stared icily at Mancusi and, without missing a beat, one of these men, Richard X. Clark, stated that they would have nothing more to do with him and would only talk to the commissioner or the governor. Mancusi stormed back to his office. He was not happy to hand the problem off. In fact, he still hoped that he would be able to send Major Monaghan in to take back the rest of his prison 
as soon as there was sufficient manpower. But that idea was nixed when Commissioner Oswald finally arrived from Albany at 2 o'clock p.m. with his team of officials, including his deputy commissioner, Walter Dunbar, the chief inspector of the New York State Police, John C. Miller, and Gerard Houlihan, director of public information for the Department of Correctional Services. During a briefing in Mancusi's office on the second floor of the administration building that afternoon, Oswald made clear that he wasn't willing to approve a forcible retaking of D-Yard because he was worried about the potential loss of life. Instead, Oswald hoped they could find a peaceful resolution through negotiations. One thing the commissioner was insistent about, however, the prisoners would have to release the hostages before he would agree to talk with them. Meanwhile, there were other parties